Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. How wonderful. Another mutant already here. Stuart. You know, when I do this, bad things tend to happen. And Arnie. This is yours. No, it's ours. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. Who will you stand with? The humans or us? Culminating in a weekend of release review of the newest X-Men film, X-Men First Class. They will never, ever forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X-Men First Class, starring James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Rose Byrne, January Jones, Jennifer Lawrence, Oliver Platt, and Kevin Bacon, directed by Matthew Vaughn. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is your groovy host, Jacob. Yeah, baby, yeah! I, I got flashbacks <laughs> to that film during a few scenes here. I'll be honest. Absolutely. Oh, come on. It's your only reference to the 60s, Austin Powers. It's just the way they delivered the line. Does mutation make you horny? <laughs> <laughs> so we have reached the culmination of our X-Men retrospective series, X-Men First Class, by Kick-Ass director Matthew Vaughn. And I'm actually saying he directed the film Kick-Ass, not that I'm a giant Matthew Vaughn fan. Although, well, I still haven't seen Stardust, but he's two for two. <laughs> I think I will keep it that way, actually, and continue to really like him. <laughs> As we usually do, we talk about kind of on these weekend of release shows, how our audience was and where we saw it. Now, did either of you see the 3D version? Mm, missed it. Did you have mutant powers to be able to turn them into 3D objects, Arnie? It was very relieving to a point to see a weekend of release film and not need glasses. <laughs> it's only because they didn't have time to process it in 3D. I mean, this movie had a very tight post-production and production schedule. I mean, they barely got it done. Yeah, the schedule was so rushed on this thing that I actually was talking to the Hasbro people and the Marvel people at Toy Fair in New York earlier this year, and I'm like, where's the first class figures? Because I got to admit, I love the costumes in this. I want figures of this. And what they said is, well, we're putting out first class product, our first class, referring to their comic book. I mean, yeah, there actually is a X-Men first class comic series that came out a, a few years ago. It doesn't have anything to do with this movie, though. Basically, they took the original team and they just kind of did some retroactive stories. It's an all-ages comic. Uh, I think as we get into this film, we're going to find out it is probably not an all-ages film. Sure enough, there are toys in the stores that say First Class, and I kid you not, it's Sabretooth, Wolverine, Cyclops, and Jean Grey, none of whom are in this film. They have a Wolverine claw for First Class. But truth be told, it takes about two years to get toys 
from idea to market because of sculpting times, manufacturing times. This film was made in less than two years. I think, what, 12 months from concept to screen? Yeah. So there was not even time to merchandise it properly. So no 3D. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, I saw it on a Friday afternoon, so we could record this on Friday night. And my theater was mostly empty. And what was there was primarily fanboys and Marvel shirts. I was kind of shocked at how few people were there, but it was an early show. I too saw a Friday afternoon show, but it was about halfway full. I was actually surprised how full it was, and it, it was a good mix of people. We had, we had some younger people there, and I was sitting next to these, like, they had to be in their 60s, and man, when that Transformers trailer came on, they got excited, and they were talking about the Avengers, and it was like a man and a wife. It blew me away, like these old fanboys and fangirls or something sitting next to me, but it was a good crowd. My mom has been visiting me this week, so I said, hey mom, do you want to go see a movie? movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> and so, having never even heard of the X-Men, I took my 69-year-old mother into a 9 o'clock show this morning, Friday morning. Not surprisingly, not too many people there. But we were accosted by ushers and popcorn sellers afterwards that hadn't had seen it yet and really wanted to know when we're going tonight. I mean, it felt like the people running the theater were more excited about it than the people actually in the show, which were half a dozen. Now, I know your mother. Does she blame me for this too (laughs) (laughs) you are responsible for me uh seeing all these x-men movies so i I think you have to uh take the burden of that but uh, good news she actually came out and i asked her was it so bad she said well it was better than tree of life which i had taken her to a few days before so she's like i could actually follow it and understand it Uh, so yeah you're not in the doghouse with this one but you are for tree of life good to know Oh, I I may never be forgiven for that one. Usually we jump to our plot summary here, but before you do that, Arnie, I just feel real strong about this movie, that if you have any desire to see it, please, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it first before you listen to this podcast. I think you'll just lose a lot if, if some of the things are spoiled for you. There's some great surprises. So I urge you, if you have any desire to see it, go see it. I'll support you and go and see it. Then come back and listen to our show. I think Jacob's showing his hand a little bit. No, oh, that's okay. I think that we were all in agreement that anybody that's been following the series up to this point needs to check it out for themselves. And if you haven't, then let's spoil it for him. Arnie, give him a plot. The movie starts with a bit of a reenactment of what we saw at the start of the first X-Men film with Eric Lenscher, who would later be known as Magneto, a child in a Nazi concentration camp, separated from his parents using his power to bend a metal gate. But in X-Men First Class, the scene continues and we see Nazi scientist Sebastian Shaw. Now, I want to clarify, this is not the man who would go on to play unmasked Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. So Shaw takes an interest in young Eric's mutant powers, trying to force the boy to move a coin. And when Eric is unable, Shaw kills Eric's mother, and Eric's rage causes a hailstorm of metal, much to Shaw's delight. Meanwhile, in 1944 in Westchester, a young shape-shifting raven breaks into the Xavier Mansion, where she's confronted by young mind-reader Charles, who's delighted to encounter another mutant like himself and allows Raven to stay with him as a foster sister. But the majority of the movie takes place in 1962. Eric, now a grown man, has been hunting the globe for Nazis on the run, primarily Sebastian Shaw to get revenge for his mother's death. Meanwhile, Charles Xavier has graduated a PhD with a thesis on mutation in humans. 
But the catalyst for the story is Shaw, who is still alive and, in fact, unaged due to also being a mutant. He has three henchmen, the telepath Emma Frost, who can also turn her skin into diamonds, teleporter Azizel, and whirlwind maker Riptide. Shaw calls mutants the children of the atom and plans to manufacture a nuclear war to wipe out all homo sapiens while the radiation causes even more mutants to be created. Through his years and military connections, Shaw is coercing America to put Jupiter missiles in Turkey and then in retaliation causing Russians to put missiles in Cuba. Investigating Shaw at Emma Frost's home base in Vegas, the Hellfire Club, CIA agent Moira McTaggart discovers Shaw and his entourage are mutants and recruits Charles Xavier and Mystique to aid the CIA in bringing down Shaw. But when the CIA launch an attack on Shaw's cruise ship, they encounter Eric, who has also arrived to kill Shaw. Shaw and his henchmen escape in a submarine, and Charles rescues Eric from the water. And together, Charles and Eric recruit other mutants to join the CIA, including energy-shooting Havoc, loud screamer Banshee, seemingly unkillable Darwin, and flying stripper Angel, as well as agile and smart mutant Hank McCoy, who already worked for the CIA designing their Blackbird plane, and also developed Cerebro to help Xavier find the new recruits. This leads to a battle between the two mutant groups, with Eric and Xavier capturing Emma Frost, while Sebastian and the others infiltrate the CIA base trying to recruit the new mutants. Angel joins Shaw and Darwin pretends to, but is killed when he betrays Shaw. Hiding out at Xavier's mansion now, the new recruits go into training, but strife forms between Eric and Charles over Eric's brutal methods of finding Shaw and his plans to kill Shaw when they do. Meanwhile, Mystique and Hank have an attraction due to their both disliking their mutant appearance, and Hank is working on a cure for their appearance that would leave their powers intact, but inspiring words from Eric cause Mystique to be proud of her looks, and when Hank injects himself, it actually increases his mutation, turning him into a feline-looking blue-furred beast. The climax of the film takes place at the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Shaw has captured a Russian warship to start war with the U.S. The good mutants fly in to stop Shaw, but Shaw's anti-telepathy helmet prevents Charles from controlling him. Magneto infiltrates Shaw's ship while the other mutants fight it out, and Magneto has the ultimate revenge, stealing Shaw's helmet and taking that same Nazi coin and boring it through Shaw's head. But the Russians and U.S. are frightened by the powerful mutants and agree to work together, launching both sides' missiles at the island where the mutants stand. Magneto uses his powers to capture the missiles and tries to turn them back, destroying the warships from which they were launched, and Charles tries to stop him physically, but Eric overpowers him. With each new distraction, a few more missiles fall into the water, and finally Moira comes out shooting at Eric, and Eric deflects the bullets, one accidentally going into the back of Charles Xavier. His remorse causes the rest of the missiles to fall, and Eric, Mystique, Riptide, and Azizel leave to form their own anti-human mutant group, while now paralyzed Charles opens his mansion as a school for mutants, and he wipes Moira's mind clean of the memory so the CIA cannot find them. And at the end of the film, Magneto frees Emma Frost from her CIA prison to join his new brotherhood as credits roll. But where was Charles's twin brother? That's what I wanted to know. That's the one thing they didn't explain. Well, that was something that Charles had done in the womb, so he was already in Scotland? Wait, it was a fetus? They've had a fetus in life support? Yeah, I guess he's in the NICU. I want to know exactly how Magneto helped build Cerebro. He kind of just showed up and there it was, right? Yeah, I know Matthew Vaughn in some interviews says this is a direct prequel to the X-Men trilogy. I'm just not buying it. And I prefer it not to be. I I like the story here. But if you're taking this as a prequel to those movies, there's some continuity problems. He referenced one of the things that he was trying to do with this was he referenced the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot, which essentially kind of took all the beloved elements that they love, but found a way to liberate 
insulate themselves from all that comes afterwards and say, hey, we're going to do our own thing. I think it's both a reboot and a prequel. problem with that, though, is in Star Trek, there's time travel and that whole thing to explain how these two different universes could exist. There's nothing to explain that here. Maybe we'll get that in First Class Part 2, but there's no explanation to bridge the continuity problems here. I guess they can't call it Second Class without making it seem lesser, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Economy coach! (laughs) I think that was the last X-Men, actually, that Wolverine thing. That was like the luggage bin. (laughs) Well, we'll talk about some of the continuity discrepancies as we go through. But let's start with the film starts. First of all, I'd never seen this Bad Hat Harry logo before with the usual suspects lineup. Is that... Singer's company. Brian Singer's very much still involved with X-Men, and he, at one point, was going to direct First Class, but he's making a fairy tale movie, uh, Jack the Giant Killer, instead, and just served as producer and story credit. Didn't he have to go to court to get his name on the credits here? I, I, I remember reading a big story. There's a big fight with how much of his story was actually ended up in this movie. Actually, he went to court trying to get somebody else's name removed because remember when we talked about x-men origins wolverine they were going to do x-men origins magneto well zach penn had written x-men origins magneto and the lawsuit was kind of around whether or not he would get some credit for this because there was some arbitration and i guess the writers guild is kind of weird about that and so the lawsuit was trying to determine who should get story credit with singer being one of the people vying for it and how much of this was really taken from from the X-Men Origins Magneto script. And I could, I could kind of see that. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, this is, in all intents and purposes, Magneto's movie. This is imagining him as the star. And it's very clear to me how you could have made the whole movie about his search for the Nazi that killed his mother. But I think wisely they expanded the scope and brought in so many other classic characters as well. And we start with that scene back in Poland, 1944, concentration camp again. I was really impressed with the level of detail they took to recreate X-Men 1 with new actors. The camera angles, the tone, the colors. I mean, having just watched X-Men 1 for our retrospective, it was very fresh in my mind. And to see it here so recreated so exactingly was really amazing. I wouldn't have been mad if they'd filmed it a different way, but they really tried to make it feel almost as if we were seeing X-Men 1 footage again. I was actually wondering if they just recycled some of the footage. I know in the trailers they would show footage from the original films and then cut to their younger selves. So for a while, then I figured out, okay, these are different actors, but yes, it's very similar to the original X-Men film. And the reason why you know it's not outtakes is because the very same actor that's playing young Eric appears in the next scene with Kevin Bacon. I'm really glad they did this because we'd always said that that scene might not have been entirely necessary, right? It didn't have any direct impact on the plots and things. So here it felt like it was coming full circle and really getting the payoff because there was that scene in the first one where you'd see the Nazi in the window and everything. And now we got to find out what all was going on there. And I really liked seeing this again and seeing it pay off and seeing more of what the Nazis did now that they were aware there was a mutant in their ranks. I think I said in the original X-Men review that I was a little queasy about going here, but I think it's handled very well, and I I do feel like what they show us, the new stuff that they show us, is important. It's character-defining. 
Now, I did have a thought back to our Wolverine podcast at this point, Stuart, because we see Sebastian Shaw, played by Kevin Bacon, and he is a mutant who doesn't age because of his power, similar to Wolverine. And I had a memory of you liking this origin for Magneto being in World War II, and here we have Sebastian Shaw, also an older mutant, but you hated Wolverine being a Civil War era mutant, saying these are supposed to be the 60s children, so where do you come down now on mutants? in the 40s and earlier. Well, it makes sense. I mean, it started at this time period. I mean, these were the pioneers of it all, right? That makes sense. If you're going to have people in the 60s opening a school that are mutants, they would have had to have had the powers in the decades prior. It's fine. I just have a problem with colonial mutants. (laughs) (laughs) And I gotta say, you know, they refer to it in the film. Kevin Bacon says it himself, as Sebastian Shaw, that they are the children of the Atom. And and that was kind of one of the themes in the original run of X-Men that, you know, is the atomic Atomic age, nuclear power, the, the, the whole Cold War, fear of the Russians. I mean, we point out all the other metaphors for X-Men with race and sexual preference and that kind of thing. But there is also that element in the original run of the children of the atom, the fears of nuclear war or of radiation or of the Soviets. So I, I'm glad, again... They played with that. You know, it's not that they're going so far back, like Stuart said. It's not colonial, pre-colonial, or anything like that. It's still tied to the atomic age. Yeah, no. Can I just say I love... Kevin Bacon as a villain in this. I, I don't spend much time thinking about Kevin Bacon. Usually he's just a passageway to thinking about other actors. But he's great in this, and what a great villain. I mean, you guys up to this point seem pretty dismayed that the X-Men never fought any other mutants. I think we can easily say this is the best villain they've ever had. Oh, yeah. Going back to this opening scene where he's prodding Eric to use his powers, and, you know, he finally shoots his mom, and Eric goes into this rage, and Kevin Bacon's not scared. Mm -mm. He's, like, applauding him, and he's like, excellent, excellent, outstanding. (laughs) The bell is melting, the file cabinet is crashing, the Nazis, their helmets are crushing their heads, and he's, like, giggling. He's like, this is awesome. I love his laugh there. I just absolutely love it. I think he was great throughout this film. A couple of times, I think his plastic surgeon turned him into Gary Cole, but other than that, I thought Kevin Bacon was great. Yes, and, you know, he makes an interesting distinction early on that he's not really a Nazi, that he doesn't support the Aryan view of genetic superiority. He's there as mutations. They tip at the hat earlier that he's a mutant, but I didn't pick up on it in these scenes. I merely thought that he was someone that was interested in the wide-ranging possibilities of genetic mutation. They've done a good job of setting us up on where we're going to go with this character, but they still haven't told us everything yet. I knew he was a mutant because in one of the trailers they showed him like waving his arms around like Neo in the Matrix. I honestly thought thought his mutant power was he could have four arms, though, so I wasn't quite sure about it. I also wasn't sure about the age thing, because I'm like, I knew Kevin Bacon was the villain, and I see the scene, I'm like, well, he's got that little mustache. Is that supposed to be younger Kevin Bacon? Will he look really old later in the film? And no, he looked the same because one of his powers is not aging. So I liked him in this movie a lot more than I expected to, to be honest, because having seen him play a villain in Hollow Man, he did a lot better here. <laughs> no, he's great. I loved him. Kevin, I haven't thought about you since Footloose, but... This may be your finest hour. What about the other side of the pond in Westchester, New York, 
work with Little Mystique and Little Charles Xavier? Little Mystique freaks me the hell out. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I like Mystique in the previous films. And I don't mind Mystique when we see her in her, I don't know, early 20s, however old she's supposed to be. But Little Cabbage Patch Face Blue Mystique with her big white teeth. Just something unsettling about that. It is like a horrific version of My Girl. <laughs> I think my girl is plenty horrific, but I know what you guys are saying. I mean, what they've done is they've spun it on its head. Up to this point, we thought of Mystique as a sex object. And here, now that it's a prepubescent child, she looks much more innocent and, yeah, just otherworldly. We're picking up less on her erotic qualities and more of her as just a freak. You know, the scene goes too quick for me. I've got to say, in all of the telling of the origins, I still feel like Charles gets the short end of the stick. I'm still not sure why a Brit is living in New York and then goes to school in Oxford and somehow passes this girl off as someone to his family who we never see. I mean, it's all very convenient. I, I wish there was some more information here. But, you know, they needed to establish this relationship early. It's a really important one, and I love the way it develops over the film, so I'll go with it. Maybe there's a deleted scene somewhere that on some future DVD will give me what I'm looking for. And yet, you know, like with Wolverine Origins, you had Sabretooth and his relationship with Wolverine, which doesn't make any sense when we see him you know, thinking back to the original X-Men film, this doesn't work for me. If this is supposed to be a direct prequel, well, this is never touched on again in, in the previous three films, because I'm sure they never had that idea to make them stepbrother and stepsister. I like the relationship. I, I like how they are in this film, so I don't mind it in this film. But trying to say this is a prequel, this is a big problem for me. It just doesn't jive. Well, to me, it's kind of like Uncle Owen having owned C-3PO in Attack of the Clones. You know, it doesn't completely invalidate what you've seen before. It just makes it a little bit more unlikely, right? That not only would Charles and Mystique never have a reunion scene, although Charles was, you know, incapacitated and dead for two out of three movies, but also that Mystique is the one who poisons Charles so ruthlessly. It creates questionable continuity, but doesn't invalidate it. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? I'm okay with them leaving the other stuff behind. I enjoy those other movies. I gave a pass to all three of the X-Men, what I would call the real X-Men trilogy. That was its time, and now they're rebooting it and going back and they're taking the best ideas and going forward in a slightly alternate universe. I'm cool with that. I think that's a good way to go. I don't need fundamentalism in my comic book movies. You're doing it a little different this time. I'm good. I have to say, I think that in their mind, this isn't a reboot. And the reason I think that is the slavish recreation of that opening scene. If they'd done something different with that scene in any way, that would be one thing. But the fact that they made it look like X-Men 1 footage down to the grain, then no, they want this to be completely in continuity with the other three. But they also want to do what they want to do. So yeah. that's why I say it's very Lucasian. Because Lucas, he didn't want to re reboot Star Wars with the prequels, but he wanted to tell the story he wanted to tell. And if it required some kind of bullshit answers as to how it worked, well, then it requires some bullshit answers as to how it worked. I'm down with it. I like this relationship between Raven and Charles that develops throughout the picture. I like where this could go in the future. And however they handle themselves in previous movies, well, their relationship wasn't the most interesting part of those movies anyway. Maybe they had some time in between films to catch up and go, so you're still working with Eric, huh? Yeah. <laughs> The one thing about this relationship that kind of never clicked for me is that when they're kids, Charles is so happy to see another mutant. And when they grow up and they're adults, he's 
telling her, you know, you should put your mutant side away. You should hide what you look like because people should accept mutants, but not mutants who look like you. I found that to be something kind of odd and something that Charles never really grows out of. I would think as a telepath that he would know better than to be kind of so dicky about it. I can understand that impulse because if someone that looked like her natural state were walking around the streets of London, at the very least, she would be put in a circus sideshow. Early Xavier in this film is kind of a dick. Like, when we see him when he's off at college, he's picking up on women and ignoring his stepsister. Like, it's a very different Xavier than we're used to from the other films. You know, not very stoic, a, a younger Xavier. And yeah, he, he does, you know, have a lot of discussions with Raven about, you know, you, you should kind of hide it. We got to be secretive about it. We can't just come out. I don't know how I feel about the Xavier in the first part of this film, because it is so different than what we're used to. I love it. I think this is the first time that we're seeing this side of Professor X and as seeing him as a young hooligan. I, I like that. I mean, I never thought about Patrick Stewart being a ladies man and getting drunk after his thesis and, you know, trying to pick up a chick with two different colored eyes. I mean, I, that wouldn't have occurred to me. But the way that it comes across here, I think this totally makes sense. And I love it. I think the character finally has come to life in this movie. I liked the scenes. Again, this is where I was thinking Austin Powers, though, because with that accent saying groovy, baby, and drinking all those beers and hitting on the women, I'm like, wow. It's not that Austin Powers is my only point of reference for the 60s, but this was just bringing me way back. Yeah, it felt like just the way he said groovy, it, Austin Powers is what stuck out to me. I've seen films from the 60s, but I got to figure that the producers here, for most people in their teens that are seeing this, that is their reference points for the 60s. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they were going for. Well, it's just one of those buzzwords that is forever locked up into that decade, much like radical is to the 80s, tubular. I, I just feel like it would be hard to say it and not make it seem like parody, which is, of course, what Austin Powers did with the 60s. And so, yes, we're seeing it through that scope, but I, I guess I've seen enough 60s cinema and a, and a fan of the decade itself that I really not once thought about Austin Powers. I totally bought all the period details here. Can I say I just love all the detail work in the art direction? I love being back in this time. Every moment, every scene, every frame, I just enjoyed the detail work that went into the art direction. To me, it seemed it was period when it wanted to be, but for the most part, it seemed more of the timeless feel that a lot of movies try to go for. Because a lot of films that are even taking place in current day, they try not to use the latest cars or the latest technology so that they could take place, you know, almost any time and still be relevant 10 years from now or so. Here, it seemed like they did a lot of that. It's not like everybody was walking around in 60s attire or anything. Everybody kind of had their own uniforms and things like that. They look pretty 60s to me. That cat suit that uh, Emma Frost is wearing is totally Bond girl babe. And that's what I loved about, like, Sebastian Shaw's submarine. It is just, it was a Bond villain submarine. <laughs> it, it was, like, pure white inside and glass mirrored walls. And, yeah, Emma Frost, I mean, in her cat suits. I like that. It didn't feel authentic 60s. I wasn't alive in the 60s, so maybe that's how it was if you were a nefarious type person. But there were times, and we'll talk about this when we get into the group, the first class of X-Men, I mean, some of the hairdos didn't seem very 60s to me, but when it wanted to feel 60s, yes, it felt very 60s. Let me just say, for a movie set in the 60s, there were a lot of strippers. 
<laughs> they were go-go dancers. Different thing back then. Angel was a go-go dancer? She was a stripper. I, I don't know. I Again, I wasn't alive in the 60s. Could you get a private... Yeah, are you trying to say that there were not strippers in the 1960s? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it seems like the fact that two out of ten mutants were strippers seems like a high percentage for that period. Did Angel come from the Hellfire Club? I, I wasn't sure. Was she from just another strip bar? Not clear. Yeah, but I mean, the Hellfire Club, I talked about this way back with Generation X, and we've probably all forgotten <laughs> about that by now. Shudder. Yeah. The Hellfire Club, which is this secret society that's trying to control the world, and, you know, Sebastian Shaw is trying to manipulate the world leaders. I mean, a strip club was one of their covers, and that started around, I, I think, in the late 70s. So going back to the 60s, I guess it's not too much of a stretch. You know, when you were explaining that in Generation X, I just thought that that was sleazy exploitation. But here, I really dug it. I really get that now that the strip club could be a front for a cabal, uh, you know, the Illuminati. I thought that was really cool. I loved the campiness and yet the credibility of it all, that it was just believable enough to make you go on this fantastical ride. And Emma Frost, I have to say she's one of the few characters that didn't work for me in this movie at all. I don't really know January Jones. I don't watch Mad Men. I don't have a problem at all with Emma Frost in this. I think it's a great character. I do think January Jones is a little flat in her readings, but... You know, they make it work. That's kind of my problem is I wanted to like that character a lot based off of seeing some of the art. And she really looks the part. I mean, she looks mm -hmm. like she jumped off the comic book page in that opening outfit, especially with the garters and everything. But anytime she spoke... I thought she was bad. I thought she was really bad. And I'm like, wow, I wish they'd gotten somebody who maybe didn't look quite so good in the negligee, but was perhaps a bit better at being, I mean, she's supposed to be this evil sex kitten and she just comes off very, very boring. I guess I didn't have too much of a problem with Emma Frost portrayal here. I mean, she is a very cold, emotionless person. I mean, she turns into diamonds. Her last name's Frost. There were a few line deliveries that just didn't sell it to me. There's the scene where she's being held by the CIA, and she cuts into the, the glass and tells him, you know, in a war, uh, you're assuming that either side could win, and, and that did come off a bit flat, but for the most part, the way I've pictured her in the comic is not having a lot of emotion. She is a very cold, sees herself as a very superior type person, so she wouldn't have to emote that much. The problem is I don't think that the actress is coming across as very intelligent, and I'd like this villainess to be kind of cunning. And and that's what's not selling me. The, the, the flatness and certainly the body, I get all of that, but I just don't believe that she has the brains to engineer a World War III nuclear strike. And indeed, she defers most of her ideas to Sebastian. So it works well enough, but I hear you, Arnie. She's not as great as she could be. And while we're at the Hellfire Club, there's also Moira McTaggart, who we saw at the end of X3, and Stuart said, who the hell is Moira? This is not who Moira was there, I'm pretty sure. No, she's not even like this in the comics. She's a geneticist, and here she's an American CIA agent who's willing to just strip down to her underwear to infiltrate a secret club. Which I didn't mind. No, I like Rose Byrne. I, I watched Damages for all its entire run. She was a big part of that show, and, and I just think that she is a lot of fun to watch, and you'd never guess she's Australian, would you? No, I wouldn't. I also saw Damages. I actually recognized her and went, hey, it's Dorme from Episode 2, Star Wars, but that's maybe just me. Yes, that, that was just, just you. you. <laughs> 
But she's great fun here. I wish the movie could do more with her. I really liked the idea that she was the one human ally that the mutants had, other than Oliver Platt, who kind of comes and goes very quickly into the story. He's sort of functional. Here, she's really a part of the team. She just doesn't get a whole lot of screenplay, or at least not enough for my taste. But she's fun. I sure do like watching her. My only problem with her is what a period. And I'm glad they call her out and are like, you're going back to the typing pool. And this is why we don't have dames in the CIA. But it did seem a bit of a stretch that she'd be such a high-powered CIA operative and a woman in the early 60s. Yeah, she's at the forefront of her class that you get the sense that she's only there because she is so smart and she is so good at it. But you're right, she's surrounded by men that don't trust her. And of course, she's allied herself with mutants who they also don't trust. And you mentioned Oliver Platt. I'm an Oliver Platt fan going back to Three Musketeers. I am always overjoyed to see him in anything, be it Simon Birch or Lake Placid. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'm overjoyed not to see any of those works, but I sort of remember him from Flatliners. But I I don't really know the actor, and I I didn't really have much feeling about him either way. Like I said, he's functional. He gets the team going. He creates a mutant wing of the CIA and is dispatched quickly thereafter. It's incredible that he could do that. We wouldn't have bought it if Moira had done that. It's just, yeah, that would have strained the credibility of women in the CIA at that time. You know, when Moira goes to the CIA, her her bosses, they don't believe this whole mutant thing until Xavier and Mystique reveal themselves and show them their powers. Yet the CIA has this secret mutant base or was that just a, a just a secret base that they had? They never used the word mutant. It was a test base. It was a covert testing base where Hank is working under disguise. They don't know he's a mutant. More to the point, I kind of got the impression. I mean, in the credits, Oliver Platt is listed as Man in Black. He doesn't have a name. He's a Man in Black. And from that, I took it as he's from his own division. You know, the MIBs that would perhaps someday go on to have Agent M and Agent K. And he seemed to have a belief in in mutants. So maybe as the secret black ops group, they were preparing for that. Yeah, and he seemed the most willing to believe right off the bat, whereas Strikers here doesn't want to buy into it. And I do like that they work in that cameo. Yeah, it was a nice little callback to little Billy Stryker. Mm-hmm. But really, the most central relationship here, the the crux of it, as it has been in all of the X movies, or at least the best ones, is the chess game between Charles Xavier and Eric Lynchard. They're really the crux, and they remain the crux. And I love the fact that we still see them as the pivotal characters of this franchise. I love these. I mean, there's so many different steps in their relationship here. Their introduction, when... Professor X, Charles is new with the CIA and just he alone with Mystique are accompanying the CIA to take down Shaw. And it's where he gets into the telepathic battle against Emma Frost, which I thought was well done. And Magneto is there trying to take down Shaw. I just loved that scene and love that introduction, the way the two characters came together, you know, fighting a three-way battle against a common enemy and both of them losing. It showed that Shaw was smart and powerful and was a great way for these two characters to meet cute. Yeah, what I really like, I mean, there's this great scene where Magneto, he wants to get Shaw so bad that he's willing to use his powers to be dragged by this submarine and is going to drown and die. And I mean, one of the themes of this movie is that how, 
how many sides there are to every conflict and how difficult it is to decide which is the right side. And Xavier jumps in and it's this great moment where he's like riding on the back of him and using his telepathic powers to say, let it go. We could come back or you could get him another time. It's not worth dying over. It's a great way to really kick off, I guess, their relationship. And Magneto remains my favorite character of the series. I gotta say, I love Michael Fassbender in this. He is the star of the movie. Every time he is on screen, it is electric. It is magnetic. This guy is going to be huge. I, I enjoyed watching him in a very similar role in Tarantino's last film, Inglorious Bastards, where he was, you know, a Jew hunting down Nazis. And here, he takes it even to the next level. I mean, he is the James Bond of Nazi vigilanteism. It's great. He's great fun. All the stuff with him tracking down the Germans in Argentina and the blowout with the beer steins and all of this stuff. I just think he is the focal point for me. The the movie is still in its origins. Magneto's movie. I don't know this actor from much. I've seen 300 and I've seen Jonah Hex. Couldn't place him in either one though. But here I didn't know how I felt about him. I thought he was good enough which meant very good but to try to take on the role you know Sir Ian McKellen made famous I thought he was merely doing okay until we get that scene where he's turning the satellite dish and Charles is trying to help him become more powerful and you see the memory of a tender moment with his mother and the actor there doesn't have much to work with there's not a lot of lines but the facial expressions I, I mean the tears could be glycerin but the facial expressions and all of the motion and his eyes and his face and then his smile when he gets the radar dish to turn this actor grabbed me and made me realize he is phenomenal and the way he did that scene it, it's so hard for an actor to go with no words and he just did that all so well and yeah he lived up to every expectation i could ever have for this role i am so happy he is the guy even though i don't know who he is before it. Yeah, I've seen those movies, Jonah Heck, 300, Inglorious Bastards. I don't know who he played in those movies, but I thought he was great, you know, during the first act where, uh, Stuart, you said, you know, he's playing James Bond. I, I, I thought that too. I thought he's channeling Daniel Craig's version of James Bond yeah. and just taking out Definitely. these Nazis, able to do that action stuff. And that's obvious. He's been in 300 Inglorious Bastards action films there. But Arnie, like you said, when he has these dramatic moments, turning the satellite, a, a moment at the end when he's taking out a, a certain character, very powerful emotional stuff. Yeah, he's really known for his smaller British dramas. He did a movie called Hunger that I think won every critic's prize that year. He didn't get nominated for an Oscar. It was too small and obscure. But he is... Well, no, well-known in England as a dramatic actor with real chops, so less so as an action star. It wasn't clear to me that he'd be able to pull that off, but he, he does it handsomely. It just, he's awesome in this movie, I think. If they had made a movie where it was just about Magneto, he would have been just as good. I could have watched the whole movie just him. And I love the action scene in the bar in Argentina where, especially the boomerang knife thing where he has the knife in the guy's hand, he throws it at the bartender, then uses his power to bring it back and you know, he there's some physicality, but there's also some great use of his magnetic powers. Loved him in this movie. Mm, yep. And then on the other side of the coin, or the other color on the chessboard, James McAvoy, who I am a huge fan of. I don't know if either of you have seen the film Starter for Ten. Nope. 
Nope. I highly, highly recommend it. And just a great movie that he is great in, funny, a nice little teenage piece. I enjoyed it so much more than I thought I would. And I'm like, this James McAvoy is somebody I'm going to watch. And then I saw Wanted, and he was good in it. <laughs> yes. No, not a great movie, but yes, he was. That's what I know him from is Wanted, and, and he was decent in that. I know him from his more dramatic stuff, uh, Atonement, Last King of Scotland. He's been fine, but up until this point, he's rarely been anything more than a foil for greater actors to do more impressive things. I don't feel like he's ever commanded the screen before. He's never had to carry a movie before in a way that he has to here. And I was surprised that he was able to fill the shoes of Patrick Stewart. I didn't see Patrick Stewart in him from anything he had done before, but he's good. He's probably almost this good as Fassbender. Well, again, see Starter for 10, because he does carry that film, although it doesn't have nearly the weight of this film. It's just a, you know, it's, it's a teen comedy type thing, but not a raunch fast or anything. But yeah. he was this main star in that in virtually every scene, and he did very well in it. Here, my only complaint would be I don't see any Patrick Stewart in him. I don't see him as Professor X. When the movie ends and you see him in a wheelchair, it felt very awkward to me. He didn't look like he was comfortable in the chair. I mean, admittedly, it was brand new. But at no point did I see him being able to shave his head and play the bald, authoritative Professor X. But you know what? I think it works because that's so much for him to go in the next sequels and assuming that they keep this going I mean I think he could become that we don't see that yet well you know they even make a hair joke when he's putting on Cerebro and trying it out for the first time he's like it'd be better if they shaved your head and he's like don't touch the hair I mean they're getting there they're just warming up it's like Batman Begins we'll see where he's at in two movies from now and if he can be Patrick Stewart and what I said earlier was I don't know how comfortable I was with this version of Professor X, of Charles Xavier, and I, th I think it's not James McAvoy's fault. I think he does fine in the role. I think it's just the way the character's written. He doesn't get that full story arc. We see him, you know, he's kind of cocky, and he's kind of less cocky by the end of the film. He doesn't get a full story like Magneto does here. So, but I thought McAvoy was fine. I, I agree. I don't think I saw a lot of Patrick Stewart here, but it's a much earlier version. I, you know, Stewart, like you said, maybe if we get another couple of films, we'll be able to see that transformation. I think McAvoy's capable of pulling that off. Mm -hmm. And I sure did enjoy him. I, you guys have said in the past, Arnie, you particularly, that you weren't big Professor X fans. Are you fans of Charles Xavier as portrayed by McAvoy? I am. I liked seeing the transition and from horny college guy to leader of a group. I wish there had been maybe one more scene of him deciding to take that responsibility. It's basically he's getting drunk at a bar. Moira walks in. He hits on Moira, reads her mind, sees there are evil mutants, and instantly he's on board and going to do whatever it takes to stop them. I wish there was a little bit more to that transition, but what McAvoy does with what's written is great, and you see it. And it really works for me. He worked for me in this as the leader learning how to lead. Yeah. And he's funny, too. I mean, that's one thing about this movie is it's as all of these X-Men film has, it has its moments of humor. And a lot of that comes from Xavier, like when he's trying to help Havoc harness his beam. And he's like, I have complete faith in you. And then he steps aside. 
I agree. He's the comedy to Fassbender's tough guy act. I mean, Fassbender's the one that breaks teeth, and McAvoy is the one that makes you smile by, you know, being witty and, and just so British. Uh, again, I ask, this guy grew up in New York? And his family's, at least in the comic, his family's been in New York for ten generations. Mm, whatever. Maybe he picked up the accent once he went to college in England. But no, as a little boy, he had the accent. <laughs> he was aspiring Brit. Yeah, he certainly was. He knows any PhD sounds smarter with that accent. That's true. And, you know, it, it, if they're going to keep any kind of continuity with Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, it had to be Brits in these roles. So I applaud the casting choice. Whatever you might fault for discrepancies here and there, these are the right actors for this movie. I have no complaints. And I, I wasn't sure going in, especially about Fassbender and blown away. Just I wouldn't have thought that somebody could step in and be Patrick Stewart and be Sir Ian McKellen. These two, they make the characters their own, but in no way are they lesser. And I love that. Right. Well, I, I think that Matthew Vaughn really did himself a favor by going with well-known buzz actors who hadn't broken yet. You know, that's what X-Men tried to do as well, although I would say that they went for celebrities and less actors. But here they really assembled people who had done really credible small work. I mean, take Mystique, Jennifer Lawrence. You know, she just got an Oscar nomination for Winner's Bone. She couldn't be more primed for something big. She's about to do Hunger Games. So she is about to be a major, major star. They've got her and in this pivotal role, and I don't know what you guys thought, but I thought she worked perfectly as a transition into Rebecca Romaine. Loved her, too. I really did. I liked that she was younger and being able to pull it off. Again, I'm not sure how much I saw Rebecca Romaine. There's one scene where she's trying to seduce Magneto, and he's like, maybe when you're older, and they morph her into Rebecca Romaine. I love, <laughs> love that it. scene, yes. It, yeah. That got a big reaction out of the crowd, yeah. Honestly, I don't think our crowd noticed, too. <laughs> it was their first X-Men film, I guess. Perhaps. Neck of the woods. <laughs> but, uh, I like that, but I'm not sure that I saw a lot of that in her, although the makeup was exacting. I mean, when she was in Blue Scales, it, it might as well have almost been a slightly chubbier Rebecca Romaine. But anytime she was acting, I really loved what she was doing, and just, I liked her character. Her character is the crux, right? She's the emotional bending point, the linchpin of which way to go, where she's torn between her brother Charles' view of how mutants should be with the world and Eric's charismatic we should be accepted for who we are. And it's Eric who convinces her, you don't need those clothes. Walk around naked. Be proud of who you are. Right. She's essentially playing the role that Wolverine and Rogue did back in the day of caught in the middle between the two sides and having to choose. Well, and there's even the choice of the cure in this film I mean, from Hake McCoy. Yeah, no, they've done a very good job of streamlining the trilogy and picking the ideas that we'd love to talk about, even in the imperfect third movie, and bringing it right in here and doing it, frankly, better. Again, I think we've all agreed to this, that this is a Magneto movie, but Mystique, I love her character arc in this film. Mm -hmm. You know, now... If we are going to relate these to the previous trilogy, I get that character even better now. I thought they did a great job in the original trilogy of X-Men developing her, but I, I thought that this is a great backstory for her seeing that struggle and having her tied to Xavier as a stepbrother. It makes it even that much more personal and that much more heartbreaking by the end. Mm -hmm. And they'd always kind of hinted at a sexual relationship between Magneto and Mystique. There were a couple of lines dropped where, like, in X2, they go, she's good, and Magneto goes, you have no idea. 
idea. So it was kind of hinted at back then. So here to see it, you know, that that is what Mystique is looking for in young Magneto and things. It works for me on that level, especially after Beast is such a dick and like, no matter what, no one's ever going to find you beautiful. And it tied back directly to the X-Men 3 line when Mystique gets the cure and Magneto goes, she was so beautiful. It it came full circle for me on her character, and I liked that. I'm not sure that I necessarily went with all of the angst from Jennifer Lawrence. Some of it played for me better than others. I liked her more angry or confused, but during the scene where she comes out naked to confront Charles, I'm not sure she did her greatest work in that scene. Well, well you know, uh, we, we could nitpick moments here and there, but I think overall, she did a great job of making us still care about this character. You know, she was one of my very favorite characters throughout the series, and she practically stole the second movie. I I think that it, it's great to see her again, and even with a new actress, she remains a compelling character. I'm glad she's here. And I found myself getting caught up in her dilemma, especially there's that scene at the bar after Charles tries to pick up the girl, and she comes in and interferes, and they have that big talk. She's like tr almost trying to seduce him, which has this weird incestual vibe, because they grew up together, but... I was wrapped up in that. I, I've said it in the past that I usually don't get lost in films, that I'm very self-aware during a movie, but I kept finding because of the actors, because of the writing, the, the way, you know, just everything in the sets, I was getting lost in this film and getting wrapped up and really caring about these characters. Well, here's the thing. Charles saw her as a baby sister, but I never thought that she thought of him in that way. It, it's pretty clear to me that she would like to be thought of as a love interest. It's not unlike to me the way that I read Kick-Ass and how Hit Girl kind of wanted Kick-Ass to think of her as something more. I agree to that to a point. She almost seemed very needy for anyone to love her for who she was, though, right? I mean, she'd take it from Charles, who should be thought of fraternally, even if she necessarily didn't. And she's so immediately interested in Hank because she sees a kindred spirit, somebody else whose mutation has kind of deformed him. And so she's so instantly willing to, you know, try to form a romantic relationship with him. And when he's like, you've got to be cured because nobody's going to find you beautiful, then she runs off to the guy who will accept her for who she is. She seems like she's very needy, and this may be completely justified. I've only seen the movie once. I plan on seeing it again this weekend and really finding out maybe some of it is the whole lost puppy syndrome. She started off homeless and breaking into houses for food. No, her heart is bleeding all over the place. She is pathetic here, but she finds her strength. You know, she, she finds a way to become the character and the badass that we do know. It's believable that she would still be a victim at this point in the story. But she only finds it when she finds someone who will accept her for who she is. She does right. not become strong on her own. She does not, you know, pull the Kelly from 90210, I choose me. No, she, it's through a man accepting her physically that she finds her strength. You know, one of the things we talked about the setting in the 60s, and yes, there's the whole Cuban Missile Crisis going on here. One of the things I would have liked to see, I guess, more in the film, not a, it doesn't have to be like a major thing in the film, but maybe a scene or two is the cultural revolution going on in America at the time. I, I guess maybe, what is this, 62 or 64? Yeah, maybe it was a little too early. 
Yeah, it hadn't quite happened yet. And that's why I'm excited about the sequel, is that they can finally put X-Men where I've always thought of, as a statement about counterculture. I think this is Batman Begins, and I think it has the potential to have a sequel that's like Dark Knight, that just takes it up another notch, now that they don't have to worry about setting up everything. Very possibly. Again, here, I, I felt it was period when it needed to be. It was period when they wanted the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. But, yeah, they didn't really get into it musically they didn't get into it with the hairstyles they didn't go whole hog on the periodness so if they did a sequel i would expect it to be equally as pick and choose your period yes yeah, so i think it's a little bit more than you guys are saying but i hear what you're saying it's not docudrama i mean they're not going for realism it's not what we think of the 60s which we saw on wonder years i mean when i think of the 60s that's what i think of and i'm thinking back to the aviator for example mm-hmm. you know yeah, this was not that for lots of different <laughs> reasons yeah i liked this <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that there is an attempt more than, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot to create a period that feels authentic and is not just gem tone people pretending that they are their parents. Yeah, this splits the difference between Aviator and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And my whole point of starting this whole cultural revolution point was, did you want to see Mystique embracing her blue self as some kind of commentary on the feminist movement of the 60s? I don't know if I want something that heavy handed. You know, okay, it's tied into a man convincing her to be herself. I guess, again, we're splitting the difference here. It's something that I think I'll put it this way. It's not here yet, but it's something I wouldn't mind seeing develop if they do it well in a sequel. And they have the room to maneuver here. They have set it up greatly to do a lot of different things, to to make this work in a lot of ways. I like the way that they were able to tie in the Cold War and the battle between the U.S. and the Soviets into the battle between the Hellfire Club and the future X-Men. I mean, there's a lot of nice parallelisms here. So, yeah, I think it can be done. But they're not there yet. They're just getting started. I mentioned Beast a couple minutes ago. What did you guys think of Hank McCoy? Again, good casting. I haven't seen this guy since about a boy, but he was great in that, and I I like him here. He does seem like the right mixture of nerd and potential hero. They called it out, the whole Jekyll and Hyde thing with the Beast, that he's this goofy little nerd, but inside him is this monster, and he's, you know, he could run really fast if he just takes his shoes off. But I thought I liked him when he was human, I guess, still, or or at least had flesh. I thought he played the nerdy scientist well. When he had the transformation of the Beast, he kind of takes on a different personality. I wasn't quite sold on it. Maybe it would have helped if they could have actually moved his mouth so it synced <laughs> up with the words. That was kind of poor. Yeah, it was an awkward transition that they had to go into here. I felt like there was a scene missing, but... <laughs> I, I didn't necessarily feel there was a scene missing because of how it was done, but it did feel like... Out of all the stories they shoehorned into here, you keep saying something for the sequel. I think Turning Beast Blue would have been great for the sequel. Honestly, I don't know that it was the right choice here. It sure it helped play out that whole Mystique storyline, but it seemed like one subplot too many and the one that got the short end of the stick. That said, I love this actor, especially in geeky mode, and I wish he was playing Clark Kent in the Superman movie, because I think he would be wonderful based off his performance here as like the Clark Kent Superman type. Because when he did beast out, I was afraid he wouldn't be able to pull it off. But they give him the physicality. I mean, the first time we see him, he's this big blue cat, right? But when he grabs Magneto by the neck and lifts him off the ground and is roaring, I'm I'm going with it. 
Yeah, I agree. And I would just like to say, for the record, I was complaining big time about Beast when we covered Last Stand. I didn't understand the need or the purpose of this character. I get it now. I like him. I like everybody here. It's amazing. This is the first time I've seen an ensemble, certainly an X-Men ensemble, where I'm happy to go with any character they're wanting to show me at this time. I think everyone is uniquely interesting, and I could pay attention to any of them. And yeah, he is maybe deserving of more than they're giving here, but I kind of like that they turned him blue in this one because it told you why he's blue. I mean, because he took the serum based on Mystique's blood. It's her blueness that made him blue. Yeah, they just, they do so much of this film, and every so often I think it's too much and they're getting a short end of the stick, like with Beast, and I keep thinking, oh, it's something they should have saved for the sequel, but I've got to realize that there may not be, you know, what? like I, we said in a previous podcast, they were looking at X-Men 4, so they couldn't leave anything on the table, right? They had to leave it all on the stage and give us everything. We had to get Professor X paralyzed. We had to get Beast Blue. We had to get Eric Evil. It all had to happen here. My sense is that Fox was not certain that an X-Men movie without Wolverine was going to fly and that they... Hey, we get Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I mean. I, I definitely think that they were very nervous about presenting no clear stars in an X-Men movie without the favorite character that has basically had been built around this character for the entire franchise. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of people worried probably until this weekend when the reviews came out and the numbers. What do you guys think of the Wolverine camp? I, I loved it. You know, I, it was funny. It got a huge laugh out of the crowd. I don't know why they lingered on his face so long after he delivered his line. But yeah, it was funny. I, you know, I heard rumors that Wolverine was going to be in this movie, and I'm glad it was just a cameo. It, it's fine. It, it was not overkill. Well, like I said, I was happy last movie to leave him behind, but you know, it's a one-off joke, and you know, it's he looked better here than he did in that Rock and Sockum Robots movie he's doing this fall. They showed the preview of before <laughs> this movie. Uh, you know, it's all right, but I don't want Wolverine, and I don't want his prequel that they're working on now. So let's stick with these guys because these. Are the ones I really like. I got a good laugh out of his fuck off. Because <laughs> it's during the whole big recruiting montage, and I loved the recruiting montage. Just the introduction to all those characters so quickly, and the way it was filmed, the way it was edited. There are two big montages for the X-Men in this. There's the recruiting montage and the training montage. The training one I actually prefer even more, but they're both just so great, and they convey so much information so quickly and so much fun. Here's my problem with the recruiting montage, and one of my problems with this film is it seems like, yes, they were cramming so much in here that there are little scenes here and there that would have helped me out. You know, this recruitment scene, they're just going up and, you know, I guess all these people are in their early 20s, but I gotta assume some of them live at home, but they're just recruiting them for whatever. Hey, if they could find every mutant, why is there only like five of them that they get? Like, it's just because, yes, I'm glad there is a quick pace here, but there's just little things like that that you could have thrown in just one little scene that could have explained some of these things for me. You could have probably had the whole movie be about them assembling the school or the team, but they had to stop just for the sake of economy. You can't introduce characters and then not really feature them in the rest of the movie. So I think that they found the perfect amount of characters that this two-hour, ten-minute movie could handle. You know what I mean? Like, if they had recruited 40 people, we just wouldn't have paid attention. It would have been like X3, where they're just mutants a go-go. It almost still feels like there's too many. And, Stuart, you said there's no characters that you don't like. I actually didn't care so much for this B-level roster here. Once you get to the recruits... 
Banshee took a long time to grow on me. I didn't like that character's voice. I didn't like his persona, his attitude. It was just that character was a really hard sell for me. By the end, I kind of found him fun when he was doing like the Mike Patton whale. But for so much of it, he just was one that I was not clicking with. I actually preferred him in Generation X. What? Ugh, please, <laughs> come on. You know what I love about him? He's the only one here that doesn't have movie star Sheen. Like, he'll probably never work again. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? He's not handsome. He doesn't have that thing. But he just seems, it's its ordinariness that I really like. And they play him that way. He's the guy that can't get the girl. I laugh because you mentioned Generation X, and I'm like, isn't he the one that ends up with Emma Frost? How the hell is that going to happen? <laughs> I don't think Generation X in continuity. <laughs> I think they're going to have to do some major screenwriting fixes to make that combination make sense in a future sequel. But, hey, there's hope for Banshee. Maybe maybe it's the voice. Chicks dig the voice. I actually like the character. I, I did too. I thought I was going to hate him. Just because it was Banshee, I was having Generation X flashbacks. Exactly. It's mm. a guy that just screams loud. It's but, it. yeah, I he, they worked for I mean, they played him as comedy relief, and I thought he was yeah. good here. And then Angel, I never quite clicked with either she's the one who seemed most out of the period she seemed with her tattoos and her stripperness and everything to be a 21st century gal i totally agree with you that yeah actually she is she created in 2001 after the movie started coming out and brant morrison took over the comics the x-men comics and was really trying to bring in some of the aesthetic of those movies that's when she was created she didn't have the weird... I didn't get the tattoo thing. Did she choose to have wings tattooed on her? Could she not have chosen anything and to get tattooed on her? And that would come alive. It, it, in Angel in the comic, not the angel, the white rich boy with the angel wings, but this angel, she just has like these insect wings. They're not part of a tattoo. That just seemed like... I know why they did it, to save on special effects. It just... Were they tattooed? Were they just merged to her skin? I would have liked some kind of line to explain that. Oh, I, I just took it to mean that she had tattoos to remind her of her secret, you know, that she had a secret that nobody was to know. And I love the scene in which she comes out to them. She doesn't have a whole lot to do here, but she's kind of the, the equivalent of Pyro and the character arc of, of going from the good side to the dark side. But when Fassbender and McAvoy are in the bed grinning at her and, and she busts out the wings, it's kind of hot and just weird and funny. I just, I, I think she works. And, you know, Zoe Kravitz, she's Lenny Kravitz's daughter, and I think that they needed her. I think that she works. I think that she's relatable for kids today. <laughs> yes, all the young strippers everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, the tattoos. I mean, yeah, all of that is not 60s. I mean, girls were not getting back tattoos in the 60s, but I think kids today would think she's really hot and weird and exotic. And she, Oh, yeah. I, I agree with all three words. <laughs> and I agree, Stuart. I, I love the weirdness of her introduction with Charles and Eric lying in a bed together, watching the stripper. Mm -hmm. It's the, this very weird, creepy. Again, the free love movement hadn't started yet, but if there's some way to tie that in, I would have just liked a little bit more of that 60s feel to explain how weird this scene comes off. Mm -hmm. It's just enough. I mean, I, you know, here's the thing. It's not 60s as we understand it from documentaries or from the history books. It's 60s as told to me by James Bond movies that star Sean Connery. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know, I think Vaughn has been pretty upfront 
on about how much they were an influence to him, an obvious one. And, and I love that. I mean, I watched all those Bond movies, and I think after we get done with Marvel, Arnie, I think we're going to have to do that series. But Hey, if MGM can get off their ass, we can get off ours. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's coming. But it did remind me of the best trappings of 60s Bond, and, and just all of the imagery and, yeah, the submarine that came out of nowhere, or even the Goldfinger girl was, was the Emma Frost and her diamond skin kind of reminded me of that. I mean, there were just a lot of callbacks to classic Bond, and I, I think the movie incorporates it so well into this superhero stuff, which I've never seen that before. I've never seen a spy caper superhero movie. It feels like something new. And I was liking that quite a bit, you know? I'd say the closest we came was being Batman Begins, where he's doing his detecting. It's a little bit spy work. But, yeah, yeah. to see it this... And you know what I'd like to say to that is, in Wolverine, we talked about how Wolverine went all over, and I said that should have felt like a Bond film, right? With all the different right. locales, and it didn't. Here... I don't know if it was just well-filmed establishing shots or what, but it really had the global feel. When he goes to Argentina, it felt different than when they're in England, than when they're in Washington. I mean, it helps that they do some scenes like Eric and Charles playing chess in front of the Lincoln Monument. But it just, it really had this global feel to it. Yes, I agree. Sometimes the special effects falter a little when they're in Russia, sometimes not buying some of the crowd shots, but for overall, I totally am buying the internationalism of it, and it does feel like the Nolan Batmans, where Batman can leave Gotham and go to China or Mongolia or, or wherever he needs to go. I like that about this series, that it doesn't just feel like it's all being filmed in Vancouver. And then another mutant who really gets the short end of the stick, Darwin. Jacob, you're the comic guy. Does Darwin actually exist in the comics? Because I'd never heard of him before. I was very confused why this cab driver was a mutant. And then they kill him pretty quick. Yeah, he's, as far as the comics go, this is the most recent mutant. Uh, he was premiered in 2006. So maybe, I mean, if you haven't kept up in the comics for a while, you haven't heard, that's why you haven't heard of him. But yeah, he's a character that has reactive evolution. He could adapt to anything, which it, it kind of made me upset that they killed him off. I thought maybe because you get this scene and he's turning into all these different substances, trying to contain this uh, energy that Sebastian Shaw has, has put into him to destroy him. There's so much talk in this film about, you know, how humans, they, they came from the amoeba and became the fish that walked onto land and defeated the Neanderthals to rule the earth. Like, I thought we'd get some final scene of him that maybe, like, for his evolution to survive, he became the single-celled amoeba or something. I didn't like that they killed him off. Why did they even bother introducing him? Because they needed to kill one of the good mutants? I'm with you on this one, and it's one of the few false notes I have with First Class, is that particularly a character that can supposedly adapt to any circumstance of crisis, how do you kill someone like that? I, it just didn't make sense to me. He should have been able to adapt to handle whatever was thrown at him. And I agree. I wanted to see him as part of the battle at the end. I wanted him in Cuba. I, I did not want him taken out of the picture. I don't think anyone needed to die. Or at least, I don't think any of the mutants needed to die. Maybe maybe some of the Oliver Platt and some of the obnoxious G-men deserved it. But, eh. And, you know, again, if you're going to kill someone, why do you kill the person who's supposed supposedly can adapt to anything. Exactly. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It was the wrong choice, and I wish Darwin were with us, but oh well. We move on. And then there's Havoc, the last of the X-Men. He's the one I liked. Out of all the supporting characters, he was the one who I'm like, this kid has a little bit of charisma. I like his attitude. I like his look. I don't quite understand his power of, of 
energetic hula hoops. <laughs> I like that they brought in the hula hoop. <laughs> really? I mean, I think what it is is he just didn't know how to. The hula hoop was his only reference on how to get it out of his body. But that was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of enjoy the way that they figure out how to channel his power. I don't know that I've had enough of the character really get it. I don't understand. He's a convict. He what did he do to end up in jail? Do we know? Well, we know he at least in the comic, and they kind of hint at it here is that he can't control his powers. Right. That they, and that's why he has to do that hula hoop move to try to shoot him in one direction. So my guess was, because they don't tell us, my guess was that he lost control and killed some people. Okay. Well, he was in an army brig, and they said he was happier when he was in there. So I didn't get that he killed anyone. I got that he was like a brawler or something. Mm. Or, okay. All of that is fitting to the character. I agree. If he were uh, on trial for murder or, or standing uh, a sentence for murder, I just don't think they would have been able to get him out without a b- breakout. Or but Charles just uh, saying, let him out. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> There's always that out. Charles can just make you do what he needs them to. Which was another great joke. You want to see another magic trick? Get in the car. I'll get in the car. Yeah, yeah they do it just enough. I don't think Charles abuses that power. It isn't the way they write him out of every difficult scenario. Now, you guys know Havoc's, I guess, birth name or Christian name, don't you? Well, they said his name was Summers. Yes, Alex Summers, which their Cyclops is Scott Summers. Oh! Cyclops' dad? Well, in the comic, Havoc is... Cyclops's younger brother. But okay. Matthew Vaughn has said that if they get to do a sequel, that they're going to change that relationship. So I'm going to guess this is going to be the father of Cyclops. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense. I mean, it is a similar power. You could see it genetically going down the line from hula hoop thighs to eyes. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I'll go with it. Sure. My biggest problem with Havoc was just his hair. This is the one that stuck out. He did not have a very 60s hair, dude. This seemed way too much of, you know, the, the kind of the faux hawk type thing. It That's the thing that bugged me about him. It, it seems weird, but, you know, it's supposed to be in the 60s. He didn't look very 60s. Yeah, and Darwin didn't have a fro. Well, now you're just getting the stereotypes, Arnie. <laughs> the, the group yeah. of recruits all didn't feel period enough. I, I disagree, but I hear what you guys are saying. I feel like the effort was made greater than you guys are giving it credit for. I mean, I believe in this world. It's not docudrama, but it is 60s fantasy. It does have a tactile quality, and I loved it. I loved being in this world. I am so glad that they didn't modernize it and that all of this was taking place now, where they're just rebooting it as the X-Men are coming into being in the 21st century. It was right to set it in this way here in the 60s. I'll give you this, Stuart. I, I love the fact that they actually used a an Oreo package design from the 60s. That's one thing that did I, jump up. I love the product placement. We yes. usually complain about it, but I'm like, when they had that Twinkies box, I'm like, that's yes. awesome. And I will say I liked the X-Men's recruits much better than Shaw's henchmen, Dave Navarro and Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> Azazel is basically just a red Nightcrawler, right? Same thing. Same tail, same teleportation. Stuart, he's Nightcrawler's dad. Oh, well, look at that. I don't even read comics and I can write this crap. All right. In the comic, he hooks up with Mystique. And so Nightcrawler has the blue skin, but the powers of Azel. That's the blue. Ah, I get you. I got you. Okay. Well, you know what? They don't have a lot of personality. And I felt like I'd seen Azazel's powers before. It wasn't anything new. And Riptide, I'm sorry, but Tornado. He's like a weaker storm. 
<laughs> yeah, I was exactly thinking that too. I'm like, I don't even like Storm. So yeah. Why is his name Riptide and not like Whirlwind or something? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> no one cared about Riptide. I'm sorry. I didn't even know his name. He was the one who I walked out of there like I just kept writing in my notes Whirlwind dude. <laughs> Tornado maker. <laughs> but yeah, those two fortunately they don't even try to do anything with them. You know, in the very first X-Men real film, we kind of complained about Sabretooth and Toad. Here, these guys are just muscle. They don't even, I don't know if they ever speak. Yeah, they're odd job, but with mutated genes. Right, exactly. They, they throw whirlwinds instead of their hat. And I actually, at a couple points, thought Azazel wasn't doing quite as well as Nightcrawler in some of the fights. I was like, yeah, Nightcrawler did so well in X2. And when we got to see Azazel working, I wasn't so impressed. But the end fight where it's like beast against Azazel, I loved that. I loved it. Well, I love, you know, when Azazel and Riptide storm the CIA building with all the mutants in it. I love that scene. Just you hear these big plopping sounds. And you're like, what the heck's going on? Are there bombs out there? What's going on? No, it's Azazel using his teleportation to grab people, go up, way up in the sky, and then just drop them. Like, I thought that was great. It was haunting. It was brutal. I liked it. Yeah. And I didn't see it coming. Exactly. Mm -mm. Yeah. Basically, are we to presume that Emma Frost knew that the team was going after them in Russia and that that's why that they were striking the complex at that time? That's what I kind of took it as, yes. Yeah. Because she's psychic. I mean, she would have known that they were there and they even say that she knows that we're there. So why would she go there? And then Sebastian's not there in Russia. And so, yes. And there's also a scene when... Xavier is using Cerebro to find all the mutants. Emma Frost feels him reaching out across the world, and, and that's how she figures out he's recruiting and looking for people. Right. And possibly how they know where they sh they are. Again, this character is smarter than the actress playing <laughs> her. I just feel like I needed someone maybe with a Jolie conniving. You know, someone that you can see the thinking behind the eyes. <laughs> that was a great fight. I loved Sebastian Shaw coming, and I... Like that Angel traded sides pretty quickly. It was like she saw which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, yeah. I, she would have no allegiance to the other humans. You know, I feel like it made sense. You can't trust a stripper. <laughs> but you mentioned Emma Frost, Stuart. Emma Frost is over in Russia handling a meeting for Sebastian while the CIA with Eric and Charles are there trying to capture Shaw. Right. They keep trying to manipulate government people on both sides. At first, they did it with that Henbury guy in Vegas, and he's the one that said, yeah, we should put missiles in Turkey. And now they're working on the Russian guy to get missiles just outside of the United States. And again, exactly how did the CIA know that Shaw was going to Russia? It just seemed like they jumped there to me. Did I miss something or? <laughs> yeah, no, that was like the frying pan to the face moment of like, I don't understand how they know. And the team's not ready, but we're going to send you guys and we don't even trust you. And yeah, nothing about that moment felt right. But for story narrative purposes, it may not have made sense, but we wanted to see something happening at that moment. Their instinct was right. We wanted this scene to occur. Yes, they needed to get there. They they just needed a two-second scene to explain why they decided to go to Russia or how they found out they'd be in Russia. I agree. I could have used it, but we didn't get it. Maybe the director's cut. I love how 
Emma Frost is seducing the Russian general, though, where she's just sitting on the sofa eating chips, but in his mind, yeah. it's some great affair. Yeah, she's so revolted by that. She's just sitting there eating crisps, and like he's having an affair with his imagining of her. That's such a great way to play it, because we've already seen Charles use that trick, and we think of her as the evil female Charles. So it's a nice callback to all of that. I really enjoyed it. But I got a little confused when they bust in. You know, of course, Charles wants to retreat because their real target, Sebastian, is isn't there, but for reasons not entirely clear, Eric wants to go forward. I guess he's blinded by vengeance and rays, and, and anyone that would follow Sebastian is worth killing. He's certainly proven that in Argentina. He turns the barbed wire on the guards and then busts into the place, and what does he do to her to break the diamond shell? I was a little confused. I know. I was wondering why brass bedposts were harder than diamonds. I, I think it was a Mm-mm. pressure thing. Okay, because this bugged me too, because an aluminum brass bedpost cracking diamonds diamonds supposed to be the hardest thing in the world i went to the wikipedia to read up on my diamond physics because <laughs> oh. it bugged me so much <laughs> and diamonds they are the hardest thing which means they're scratch resistant but they can still be shattered under pressure even a hammer could shatter a diamond okay so that doesn't stop them from breaking it's just they can't be scratched so i guess again i i don't know how solid those brass bed frame was but okay yeah it was a little convenient they had to do something to get around the fact that she could just turn to a rock hard diamond and block out xavier psychic powers I like that detail, though. I like that because I didn't really understand why she ever would be a diamond. That doesn't really seem like it would be very helpful. But yes, the fact that by doing that, she could protect herself from other psychics and mind readers, that made sense to me. I just didn't quite get how they cracked her, literally. (laughs) Yeah, and then she's kind of not seen again. I was glad there was that end scene because she's really, at this point, taken out of the game. I kept wondering where she was. I'm like, I want to see her again. I mean, she's running around in a garter belt the whole time. Let's just show her a couple more times, whether it's just sitting in a jail cell or whatever. <laughs> I wasn't confused if she had broken out or not, because we did get one little moment where she cuts a, a hole in the glass uh, with her finger, so we get the sense that she certainly could get out of there if she wanted to, but we don't know, and I knew that she would be the ending. I knew that we would come back to her. I just had a feeling that she would be the one that we would see. I had a feeling like she might be the new villain, but uh, it plays a little differently, but I, I knew that she was the ace up the sleeve that they were waiting to play to the end. So then this is when we find out, I guess, what Sebastian Shaw's plan is. I mean, we all know from the trailer that this has something to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we find out that Xavier is able to finally go into Emma Frost's mind and see what the plan is, and basically Shaw is instrumenting a nuclear war that will destroy all humans, and I guess, was it the radiation would help excel those with mutant genes, and and the mutants would be able to finally take over the radiated Earth? That's how I took it, and it finally made sense to what Sebastian had been saying when he said, the children of the atom, I was thinking of cells, you know, the the nucleus, all that electrons, all of that kind of thing. I hadn't actually thought of the atom bomb, and so I, I thought that was a great way of bringing in what was obviously the defining weapon of this time period. There was nothing more frightening, and really, still nothing more frightening than a nuclear device. It was the right moment to bring it in. It let us know what the threat and consequences were for everyone, and it just fit right in with this world. I thought it was a great... I also just thought they were powerful images, you know, when you see the devastation and all of that. It just... It's great. Well, what's funny is you said you were thinking, like, 
molecular. When he said children of the atom, I thought radiation because to me, most comic book superheroes created during the Silver Age, especially all the Marvel ones, are basically like superhero Godzillas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all radiation, radioactive spiders, mutations, yeah. all of it. When you were saying in Wolverine that you thought it was the 60s thing, I thought it was a radiation thing, you know, that was your problem. So when he said children of the atom, I immediately think, yeah, radiation is the key and that we're starting to test with atomics may be what causes future mutations. Although what caused mutations back then, well, iffy. But still, yeah, I mean, that's what I took children of the atom to be is the children of radiation. And I like his plan. And what I realized with this plan is he's proto-Magneto, right? I mean, it's not that different. Magneto would do this in X-Men 3 if he could. Absolutely. And and I was wondering if the movie knew that, and it does. But the irony was very high that Eric wanted to kill this guy so badly, and he was just like him. And I, when we get to the ending, we'll really explore that. But it is an interesting parallel. And we also get to see the origins of Magneto's fancy hat. (laughs) Yes. Because that's what I needed. (laughs) And it answered my question, why does he only have one? Were they not able to reverse engineer it and make more? I know it's a gift from the Russians. The Russians (laughs) not have more. Could they not? And how did they make it? And why would they make it? I don't know. Well, you know, it's a real thing with the Russians, and they've even played with this and that awful, awful Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull is part of the Russians' military tactics was to explore ESP and, and psychic attacks and that kind of thing. So it could yeah. actually kind of make sense. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> but why, again, we talked about this in the first X-Men film, why didn't they make enough for the whole team? You know, Xavier wouldn't have been able to get so much recon info if everyone had these helmets on. Yeah, but still, they explain why it's one. No one created it themselves, and so... You're right. I don't know why they can't reverse engineer it, but they can't. (laughs) So there's only one, and I like that. And it's interesting because we know Kevin Bacon is wearing it, and not well, I can add. (laughs) But he's wearing it, and we know it's going to end up on Fassbender's head. We just don't know how. That's really the mystery I want to crack for the rest of the movie is how does it get to this guy. I just assumed he'd use his magnetic powers to make it fly over to him. But why would he want it when he's friends with Charles? I mean, that's what I mean by understanding is that why would he feel the need to protect himself from Charles? I never felt that he fully trusted Charles, though. It was always a friendship of convenience. And we saw that in X-Men 2, X-Men United. It's a friendship of convenience to save his own skin, to meet his own ends. I I completely disagree with that, Jacob. And the reason I think that is they kept playing chess. There was some affection there. And the scene where Charles is helping him by recovering those memories, there is genuine shared emotion between these two. There is always opposite goals, but I believe Charles and he feel far far more like brothers than Charles and Mystique did after 20 years of living together. I totally agree, and Magneto's got to realize that he wouldn't have been able to move that Golden Gate Bridge if Charles hadn't unlocked that path for him about finding the place between his anger, which was only getting his power so far, and serenity. I mean, that was really key, and only Charles could do that by delving into his mind. I mean, there was a bond deeper than using them. If, if it was just a convenient thing, it wouldn't hurt so bad when he finally does put on the helmet and go his own way. 
And the other thing I'll say to jump ahead that makes me think there's definite affection is when Charles gets injured, Eric drops everything to rush to his aid. Sure. There is definite affection there. I think the differences are political. I have friends who have very vastly different political views than I do, but I think there was true affection and it was reciprocal. I totally agree with you guys. I guess I wouldn't put it past Magneto to still want to block out Charles at key moments. You know, if it means achieving his ends, I would think Magneto would want that helmet just when it fits his needs. He can still have that affection for Charles and that that brotherhood, which I agree with you guys. It's there. It's deep. It's meaningful. I just I wouldn't put it past him to be willing to stab him in the back if the circumstances were right. Well, to me, it was the thing that was driving me in the second half. I don't think the second half of the movie is quite as tight or good as the first part of it, but I, it was the thing I wanted to know. I knew they were going to fix the Cuban Missile Crisis. History has told us that got repaired. I, I wasn't really worried that Sebastian was going to have his World War III, but I was really curious to see how they were going to take the ironies of how similar Eric and Sebastian are and twist it so that Eric would be wearing the helmet. But before we get there, we got to have a montage. I love the style of the training montage because, to me, I realized something. They were ripping off Ang Lee's Hulk, yes, and I liked yes, it. Yes, yes, No, I, guys, yes. come on, this is period details. Split screen came from the 60s. Watch any movie from the 60s, any single one, split screen, all the time. This is the kind of period details I'm talking about. It has nothing to do with Ang Lee's Hulk. No, that was an attempt to emulate comic book panels. This is pure Avengers, Diana Rigg, spy caper stuff. Maybe it's a splitting the difference because I saw comic book panels here and down to the fact of showing the same shot from two different angles, which Ang Lee did in Hulk, X-Men did here. It was one of my favorite things about Ang Lee's Hulk was its comic book panel style of storytelling on film. And I thought it was used to great effect in this montage, the way it really felt like comic panels. I mean, I've started as part of this retrospective to read more comics in the way that you could have a panel divider that actually it's the same image but at different places the same way we see charles and the gun in two different things when we're getting to where he's going to shoot magneto in the head as part of the training those are comic panels yeah i I don't see it that way and and i think if you watched a lot of mod cinema from the 60s you would know that this was considered the height of film experimentalism this was being done all the time and was in vogue it was very cool and cutting edge in 1964. If anyone's wondering, I'm siding with Arnie on this. I saw his comic panels, but uh, I liked it. It worked as a montage, but it also really kind of took me out of the movie at this point because it was introducing a whole new editing or film style in the middle of the film. They never go back to that. They never alluded to that. It's just, we're going to do this montage and we're going to throw some wacky editing in there and then never come back. I wonder if Vaughn had hopes of of doing it throughout the movie more and Fox was like, uh, no. (laughs) You know, like, I feel like that might have been a creative decision taken away from him in post that I agree. It would be much more fun and effective and I certainly could have used more of it to move the story along. There are other points that they could have introduced this but I I think that maybe the studio thought that no one would understand if you use this. I mean and you're referencing English Hulk it's not something many people want to emulate. I mean at least box (laughs) office wise. They wanted this to make sense to kids today so making something fun and retro and kitschy you got three minutes. And you know Stuart, I don't watch a lot of 60s mod cinema. I'm too busy watching Blade the series to research that retrospective. But (laughs) (laughs) 
I do think if you look at the end credits for this film, which I sat through, do not think there's a scene. There's no scene. I sat through all the credits. It's very 60s funny kitschy. So maybe it's splitting the difference. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But yeah, I love the training montage because it's where the X-Men get their powers. I like how it explains Havoc having the thing on his chest to focus his powers and Banshee trying to fly. (laughs) And Banshee flying was great comedy all along, right? The jumping out the window doesn't work. And then Magneto pushes him. It was great. And there's a great callback to that when they finally go to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Magneto gets next to him. He's like, get away from me. I mean, yeah, it really works. (laughs) My mom was loving this. So, you know, it it was working for her and she didn't even know what X-Men were. But now that they're trained, they have to suit up and go into battle. And I find it so amusing. Jacob, you said in the first X-Men movie podcast that based off of the pleather of the movie, the comic books put all the X-Men in black. And now the movie's like, oh, let's suit them up in blue and yellow, just like they used to be in the comics before we made them change it because of that movie. Yeah, but here it was still like flight suits. In the comic, it's like really bad fitting spandex. So here they at least try to militarize it a bit. And it does feel 60s. It's the kind of thing that nobody would wear now. You couldn't have made the modern X-Men put in these suits. They'd be look ridiculous. But here in mod 60s land, well, maybe somebody did wear that suit. I don't know. <laughs> they were all on acid. Who knows? It's easier to write off. And you know what? I kind of liked them. I wouldn't have thought that the suits that I've seen in uh, the few, you know, X-Men comics that I've thumbed through would look good on film, but they look good here. I like it better than the black leather look of the original trilogy. I have to say I do too, because for me, I think about comic books, I think of X-Men. One of the big things is colorful, right? And I think that's something I that draws me to comic book movies is big colorful mm-hmm. experiences. And you try to take that down and make them all wear black. Sure. I mean, yeah. X-Men was coming out in the wake of the Matrix and that whole look and things, but I liked the color. I liked it, and I thought it was a great splitting the difference between the nod to the comics and, yes, being functional. And they even throw in a line, well, it will help us resist the G-forces and keep us impervious to bullets. Well, it doesn't help Charles so much later, but they said it. Yeah, good show. Good costuming. Again, I'm loving all of the detail work here. I think that hats off to all the costuming, art directing. They really, they did their job. I also liked during this whole period that they start interweaving in more of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We get to see the Americans staging their weapons with a role cameo job by Ray Wise from Twin Peaks. Yeah, why not? You know, they got Michael Ironside in here, too, for not much more right in time. I I don't know why these actors took these bit parts, but hey, it's fun to see recognizable people that you've enjoyed in other things, and yeah, I'll go with it. Hell, they even have uh, stock footage of JFK. That was the next thing that I really loved was the actual interweaving of stock footage of JFK and news footage. I don't know if the announcements that went with the footage were authentic but actual news footage from the time really helped to bring it in so much more than either doing a robert zemeckis and having the footage with some other person and cgiing the lips or having an actor trying to portray it like they kind of did in watchmen i liked what they did here yeah i agree i was thinking of watchmen in some parts watching this and that was one of the things i did like about that movie was how they incorporated period detail into the superhero world i think they do it even better here it's a dicey proposition you know, bringing in the Holocaust, bringing in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and having superheroes. But they're making it work. I'm totally buying it. 
And, and let me ask you this, Arnie, because I know when we talked about Wolverine, and I talked about, oh, I kind of like the idea that, you know, superheroes in this big fight was behind Three Mile Island, and you were kind of iffy on that. I kind of like this whole secret history of the world, and it's all about these mutants and superheroes and trying to cover that up, this whole conspiracy theory. Does this work better for you than it did in Wolverine? What didn't? <laughs> 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 Can we just seriously forget that one? Just go, Charles, go into my mind. You'd rather discuss Generation X than Wolverine. I, I actually think that's more forgivable than Wolverine, but yes. Uh, yes, and I, I agree. I, I think, uh, like you, Arnie, I was hesitant to, to sign on to Three Mile Island as the climax to that film. The Cuban Missile Crisis plays so much better here. I don't know why. I mean, I think it's just the higher level quality in all things. That is very true. It's all in the telling. You can do anything if you do it right and they do it right here you can go to nazi concentration camps and have mutants yeah. bending fences and crushing nazi helmets i mean it's how it's used and it's the fact that you know the big thing about the cuban missile crisis was the weight and the importance and i don't think anybody died in the cuban missile crisis i don't think there were any deformities out of the cuban missile crisis there were off three mile island so here it's taking a tense situation and creating a tense situation i like this i liked it a lot and i knew about it going in of course it's in all the trailers and i was looking forward to it and i was not disappointed i really liked this and i just love the whole scene i like that, that we go in and see you know the russian war captain who does not want to start the war but will follow his orders and you see michael ironside love michael ironside um, starship troopers top gun karate kid <laughs> 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 okay, keep waving that flag. Yeah, he's fine, but it's not really his movie. I'm a little less into the Cuban Missile Crisis than the rest of the movie, and maybe it's partly because I was having so much fun beforehand, I almost didn't want the movie to end. I guess that's what I was feeling. Like As this was coming into gear, I felt like, oh no, I want to spend more time with all these characters, and now they're going to have to solve everything. I think maybe that was actually the problem with the ending here, was I felt like, oh, it's all over, huh? we got to do a big blowout. It, some of it just felt, I don't know, perfunctory. All right. But it's still done well. You know, I, I think it was still kind of exciting when they blow the rogue ship up. And, you know, certainly when they're firing on the shore at the mutants. I, I, I think there are moments that work. But I, I'm not into this ending as much as I am the rest of the movie. I'm going to disagree with you, Stuart, because I don't think any of this felt perfunctory. I will agree that before we got to this fight, part of me was thinking, man, we haven't gotten to the fight yet they keep building up they keep hinting at it we keep seeing kennedy on the screen i'm like well, are we going to get there but i realized i was enjoying the time and if this had been say an eight hour hbo miniseries that would have allowed a lot more exploration mm -hmm. i wouldn't have minded at all i would have gone with this mm -hmm. for eight hours with the last hour being the cuban missile crisis seriously but what we had i do not feel it was perfunctory at all i liked so much how the fights drew out and we got to see all the various B-level mutants fight in different combinations and, you know, getting Angel, the former teammate, now fighting against them, trying to kill them. It had as much depth as these B-level characters had the rest of the film, but it was spectacular. It was exciting. It was well choreographed, well done. They had good special effects at the end. I gotta say the effects, probably due to the rush schedule, were kind of shaky at some points, like when Eric is infiltrating the Russians yes. or when he's making the bell melt. Definitely. But 
here they really pulled out all their good guns and i was so going with this whole ending from the moment the blackbird flies in and it explains where that jet came from hank built it in the 60s to the very end where charles gets shot i am so on board so excited and just engrossed i'm not i'm just i'm involved to a point that i didn't take any notes i just absorbed and enjoyed and like i guess like both of you guys i didn't want this movie to end i was loving it i wanted more and the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, <laughs> I think, like Stuart said, it didn't hold a lot of suspense for me because we know how that turns out unless they're going to rewrite history, much like they rewrote the X-Men universe movie history here. But I was really absorbed into how were they going to resolve this conflict or what was the main conflict going to be? Because we knew the Missile Crisis, it was just the setting. There had to be something more. What was going to be the buildup with Magneto? What was going to be his big character moment? How were they going to defeat Shaw when he's absorbing all this nuclear power? Like, I, I was so absorbed into this ending because I really didn't know where it was going to go. Because I knew it wasn't the missile crisis. That was the setting. They weren't there to stop that. We knew right. that wasn't the main conflict. So I was excited and just drawn into this to see where's the next step. And yeah, I wanted this to go on for a few more hours. And I'm glad that we got the big battle, though. You got to have the big battle. Oh, no, you got to have it. And it's the best one out of all these films. This is the best one. You know, I liked X3 because of the big battle at the end. Heads and tails above that. Well, clearly. Explain to me what was Sebastian doing? That was a little gray. He was absorbing nuclear from the submarine itself or from the missiles or from what no it was a nuclear submarine because he could absorb energy and then release it he can control the release of it and so he was going to absorb all this nuclear energy and then release it so he would be a nuclear bomb yeah so it looks like a bomb went off could he have done that at any point and did he need to create the cuban missile crisis to strike the fire for world war three uh, that that seems a little shaky I, I think he needed to make it global meltdown. He needed to make it, you know, the end of the world. If he had just set himself off as a nuclear missile, the odds are there wouldn't have been instant worldwide destruction at that point. By making it a political thing where they knew the other was coming and they knew the war was about to start, then he was pretty much guaranteed global destruction. Okay, I'll buy it. But yeah, I thought it was a lot of buildup and kind of nucleus interruptus that he never gets to go boom. Yeah, I, I do feel like it's a disappointment he, he doesn't get more uh, of a central villain role here. Like, he doesn't have a big fight. He sort of does. I mean, God knows we want to see Eric confront him in his big mirrored chamber. But I don't know. Did Sebastian have his moment to be tough before Eric gets his moment for vengeance? I love the vengeance moment. I'm not sure I like Sebastian's moment. I think Sebastian had his moment when they infiltrated the CIA and you see all the troops around him shooting bazookas at him and he's just taking them out. I, I think that was his big moment to shine. That was a badass moment. I got to say, when he takes the bazooka shot and then refines it to go back at them was great. Here, what impressed me was how powerful he was where like with a slight push, Eric was going it through walls. What I didn't understand is why the entire room was impervious to Charles' mind power until Magneto broke a window or a mirror. The same reason a helmet blocks his powers? Yeah, but was the whole room a helmet? Did the Russians build this room, too? I, I can only presume. I mean, they're the kind of questions best not asked, and I'll just go with it. 
but I thought it showed a physical toughness. But yeah, I would have liked to seen a knockdown drag out for Sebastian like we were getting between Beast and Azizel. You know, I would have liked to have seen a bit more of that. But instead, they choose this to be the dramatic moment. I'm not going to say it's the wrong choice, Mm-mm. really. Yeah. I like the emotion here. We got our fights outside. If you want to get your jollies off seeing a big knockdown drag out, you got it with Banshee, Havoc, Beast, Azizel, and yeah. Angel, and River Guy. You're right. You're right. And this is the core stuff. I mean, this is Magneto's movie, and this is his moment. And God knows, I love the way he brings the coin back and brings back the moment that Sebastian created him. Oh, that is so perfect that the coin comes back, and I didn't expect it. Arnie, come on. And when it comes out. 101 stuff there. It is, and I didn't see it coming. And I'm like, wow. And the whole count to three. And I don't understand why they did this, but I like how they did this. You get to see the coin traveling through Shaw's head, and the camera's panning across, like, uh, Kevin Bacon's face. And the camera is equally panning across Charles's face. And I'm like, is Charles in his head and experiencing? Yeah, he's he's feeling that pain. Yeah, yeah, watch that scene again. That's exactly it. He wasn't able to access him until the helmet is removed. And then Charles is watching what's going on in the room through the point of view of Kevin Bacon. So he's essentially experiencing the bullet or the coin through the head Uh, as Okay, that does explain it then. All right. Yeah, it's a really neat moment. And that's why he's feeling physical pain. Let, Let me ask you guys this. It seems like one of the pivotal decisions Magneto has to make and when he has these moments with Xavier during the training sequence at the mansion is you know are you willing to kill for your cause and it seems like that was the big moment I mean Magneto's tearing up as he's pushing this coin through Shaw's head but it's not his first murder we saw him earlier in Argentina taking out these old Nazis would it have been better if this was his first murder no no we (laughs) needed to know he was a badass and we needed somebody kicking some Nazi ass it's not important that this be the first murder it's important that he's finally accomplished everything he's been trying to do his whole life. This is it. What is he going to do for an encore? And the answer is, I want to be Magneto. And that's pretty badass. We're right there with him. I love that Sebastian is giving his little political speech and Eric agrees. And he goes, I agree with everything you said. But the problem is, you killed my mother. Oh, yeah. beautiful. It's the best moment in the whole movie. It is wonderful. It's a fantastic, maybe the best moment in the whole series. Just a terrific, personal, brilliant moment in, in all of this carnage and action. We have not lost sight of the characters and the character arcs. It's exactly where we needed to be. Great. Bravo. Absolutely. But you know what I didn't see coming and what absolutely stunned me is we knew that the Russians and Americans fired the missiles at the X-Men and Magneto captures them and he's going to turn them back. And Charles tries to stop him in a in a fisticuffs kind of way. But when Charles takes the bullet that is ricocheted by Magneto, I didn't see it coming. It wasn't yeah. foreshadowed. And there was audible gasps in my audience. In your Puritan audience in the Midwest, Arnie? Yeah, I know. We laughed and gasped, but there was no applause or any ooing or aahing, but there were some gasps, so involuntary muscle reaction. Yeah, this got a a big reaction from the crowd with the gasp. I almost started crying. I was so shocked by that moment, and this is when I realized how drawn into the film I was emotionally. Like, I had forgotten that at some point, Xavier has to end up in a wheelchair. I didn't even know if they'd do that in this film. And it was such a surprise, and I so emotionally tied to these characters by now, 
Like, I was physically shaken. I, I was tingling. I was almost in tears. Like, it was such a shock. At this point, I had accepted that Xavier was not going to be bald or in a wheelchair. I did not know that it was coming. And it is a shocker. And uh, the only thing I can say is I was still a little bit puzzled that Americans and Russians had decided that they needed to kill the mutants right then and there with their missiles. Like, that was a little weird to me. Well, because they were given orders, and that's one of those themes is that, oh, we're just following orders and the atrocities that come. Why would that decision be made? I mean, really? Particularly with Moira being there, you know, they call her collateral damage. But I'm like, wouldn't you round these guys up? Wouldn't you try to work with them? It's not like they're every mutant or... Maybe you're assuming that is every mute. This is where it feels like a scene was cut because Ray Wise was there. He gets literally one line, but he's in the background of other scenes. I have to think there were some other scenes where they were talking about what was going on with the mutants and that mutants were lifting submarines out of the water and things like that. There had to be. And they were just like, this movie's already two and a half hours. We got to cut it. Yeah, something got lost. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Arnie. I thought there has to be a deleted scene, because I, I just felt like the military just decided mutants are going to be evil because that's what serves the purpose of the story, is that it wasn't something that naturally came out of the story we're being shown. And I wish, again, there's just a few little key scenes that seemed maybe they were cut or for whatever reason aren't in this that I wish were, that would have really made this film just a, given it the real strength that it needed. Uh, that said, I love the parallels. I love the fact that Russians and Americans are uniting as these two factions of X-Men are uniting. It, that The Cold War has ended and the real battle is the one that we know, humans and mutants. That's what's just beginning. It's great. Not that the two factions really unite. After they bring out Sebastian Shaw, like Christ crucified, right? His arms are out and everything. Awesome. It's great. And just drop him then. Yep. I wasn't sure if it was Christ or Mussolini because of the whole World War II thing. It was a little bit of both there, maybe. It's a little dramatic theater. I mean, I think he makes his point. Don't mess with me. I am your new king. But as soon as he does that, Azizel and Riptide, they just stand around. And Angel, there's no uniting. They just stand there. It's not like they really do much. Yeah, you know, true for the whole movie. But I like that moment. I do. I do. But uh, yeah, Charles getting shot. You know, we picked on the continuity. This does kind of have some problems because we did see him walk to Jean Grey's house in X3. and Did we? Yes. Yep. And he was bald. And we saw him also walk in Wolverine, which was, and both of those were probably 80 scenes. No, I know you want to forget Wolverine, Stuart, but. I do. And Emma Frost was, what, 15 in Wolverine? But that said, she was in the credits as Diamond Girl. We don't, we, her, she was never referred to as Emma, so. It's Emma Frost. I don't need continuity with bad movies, so that's fine. <laughs> I can forget it. It's just like there is no AVP in my mind, so, yep. Doesn't exist. I don't need this one to tie to any of the other films. I so. agree. It is a reflection of those other films, but it's its own thing, and I don't want to go back. What's funny is I don't necessarily mind, because if there is a sequel to this, one thing I thought about James McAvoy was he kind of got screwed in all these action scenes. He's left in the command center to do his mental thing. He never gets in the thick of it. He's always peripheral. And so it wouldn't have mattered this movie for the most part if he was in a wheelchair. The one time it would have mattered is he couldn't have chased after Eric into the Russian compound. But that would be it. Yeah, you're right. He's not physically active, but he's an active character. And this is the first time in any X-Men movie where I felt like he was really leading. Like, I get the guy. Like, before he was just Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, dispensing some advice and then dropping out of the picture. And here I'm like, no, he is the lead guy. He is the head honcho of the X-Men. Well, that kind of raises 
a question I hadn't thought of till now, is in all the previous X-Men movies, I mean, we get to see that Professor X can stop the world. He can freeze the whole world if he wants to. Here, he does freeze the CIA base. Why doesn't he just freeze the people f- about to fire the missiles or something? I suppose he could stop them before they hit the button, but he, I get the sense that he can't do it forever. I mean, he, he mentions that when they freeze Sebastian, that he can't hold him for long, and it has something to do with their own abilities. I, I wasn't quite clear to me, but I don't get the sense that he could keep the pause button running for years. Uh, eventually, they were going to have to bear the burden of the choices being made on that ship, right? Very true. So that could be it. I mean, in in the later movies, perhaps he's just not this powerful yet. I mean, in the later movies, to save, true. to divert the world's destruction, he could have erased everybody's mind, right? But yeah. here, you know, he's just got the Superman kiss of forgetfulness, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, he's coming into his own, too. Like, no character here is what they are presented in the other X-Men movies. They're all still in process. They're all still training. I don't feel like in some like in some prequels where we get the sense that you can go from the end of it right into the next movie. I feel like there are still chapters to be told before we'd get to Singer's 2000 X-Men. You see, and that's why I was shocked that Professor X ends up in a wheelchair is because I would think that there would be more stories to tell, such as how Charles got in a wheelchair. And I didn't even know for sure while watching this movie if at the end Eric would walk away evil because I thought there might be another story to tell of where they split apart. I could have seen them ending this movie as friends and that friendship continuing because as it is, their friendship's pretty short-lived for the history of Charles continually visiting him in prison and thinking that there's eternal hope in him and good in him. But again, maybe there's another story, too, where they come back together. Who knows? I'm betting on that. I'm betting on that. And I agree with you. It was almost a disappointment that they ended as on opposite sides, that they were more or less foes. But I'd like to believe that if there is a continuation of this X-Men trilogy, that we will see that gray area where they will have alliances and you know who knows maybe charles will walk again and then get shot again maybe <laughs> maybe this is only wheelchair number one of, of future wheelchairs to come and i wouldn't even say that magneto is the magneto of you know the other three x-men films at this even by the end of this film yes he's decided he's going to take a more militant path but he hasn't created giant magnets yet to try to turn everyone into mutants i think it's still a little bit ambiguous what his what he's going to do i mean how what is his plan okay we know that he wants to save mutant kind has he become militant where he's decided he needs to kill everyone he kind of hints at that but it's not like he has some big scheme at the end of this he's still very much just forming his brotherhood of evil mutants but it kind of becomes a problem too in that in 2000, you know, when X-Men, the first film came out, he's walking down the halls of Congress without anybody trying to stop him. He's not a wanted fugitive or anything. And yet, here it is, the 60s, and he's going off, I'm going to stop the humans from hunting us, and humans are obviously hunting mutants. So, I can't imagine Magneto's the type to just sit around for 40 years and wait until he has Toad and Sabretooth for the perfect team. But Emma Frost isn't in those ones either. So, if you had Emma Frost, you could waste a good 40 years doing, you know, other <laughs> <laughs> Emma Frost thing so maybe it's when he loses her that's when things you know the evil plans kick in Emma Frost on one side Mystique on the other that would be a good night yeah I'm just saying I don't need to be evil right away I could put that <laughs> off for a while no one remembers the 70s <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that leaves Jacob Stewart do you recommend X-Men First Class 
Jacob. You know, both of you mentioned in another movie that I was going to bring up in my recommend or not recommended section, and that is Batman Begins. This very much feels that it's accomplishing for the X-Men franchise what Batman Begins, what Christopher Nolan did for the Batman franchise. You know, by that fourth film, it'd become a bit of a joke. You've heard our feelings on Wolverine and what the X-Men franchise had become. A lot of you have certain feelings towards X3. But yeah, this feels like something new, something fresh. You know, it's, it's taking these comic book characters... And it's adapted them for the screen in their own way where, you know, the X-Men films, it's still, you know, they still had those comic booky moments where we're going to have a giant magnet turn everyone into mutants. But here, it really feels like they finally figured out how to get this team to work for the big screen and not have to be a Wolverine movie. That's what I think shocked me the most. Not that Wolverine wasn't in it. I knew he wasn't going to be in it, but I thought this was going to be an Xavier movie or more of an X-Men whole team movie. No, this is very much a Magneto movie, and they've shown that Magneto can carry a film. And I'm blown away by this film. It excited me. I was drawn into it. I was, you know, got emotional at parts of it. It doesn't have its story problems and little things here and there. Yes, I, I, it feels like there's some scenes that were cut that I wish were in there. But overall, very, very strong recommend. Love this film. Stuart. You know, I was really holding it against you, Arnie, uh, after the Marvel Misfits where we watched <laughs> two of maybe some of the worst movies I've ever seen. I, I, I feel like I wasn't going to survive a, a year and a half of watching Marvel movies. But you know what? This series has been a real delight, and this is the pinnacle of it. This is a very rare moment where I can say I have enjoyed a series, and we've ended on the highest note. I think I said that about Chucky, <laughs> but I wasn't that crazy about that series in general. I mean, the fact that I was exalting Seed of Chucky as the best Chucky movie was not to say that it was a great movie. This is a great movie, and don't take my word for it. Take Mom's word for it. As a woman that grew up watching Bond movies and doesn't give a fig about superheroes, she had a good time too. I'm convinced that this could open up doors for new audiences. It has the potential like J.J. Abrams' Star Trek and other reboots, Casino Royale, Batman Begins, to really appeal to a very wide audience that goes beyond comic book world. I'm not a comic book guy, but if they made more movies like this, I would be. This is a great, tremendous entertainment. High recommend. And I'm also going to recommend this film. That said, I'm going to give it a qualified recommend. Oh, come on. And here's what I'm going to say is this is a tremendous movie for your thinking action movie fan. But I will say the younger members of the audience that I was seeing this with started texting and talking during some of the talky scenes. There wasn't enough action in it for them. You know, this wasn't explosive enough for them. But for me, this movie was aces. I love this movie. So if you like a film that balances character with action and in perfect measure, I said with X-Men 1, I thought it did great character stuff, but I wasn't happy with the action. And then I said with Wolverine, I liked the action, but it didn't do enough with the character. This movie is the best X-Men movie ever, period, for me, because it gets that balance just right so that I don't feel like I'm watching explosion porn. And it also doesn't make me feel like I'm watching a Merchant Ivory film. It is exactly what I want in a movie and I'm seeing it again this weekend with some friends because they couldn't go to the Friday matinee with me and I am so looking forward to going again it's it's a rare experience that I see a movie twice in theaters and usually it's like with Tron where I'm actually doing more of a scientific experiment than just going because I enjoyed the movie so damn much I love this movie see this movie do yourself a favor and see this movie seriously absolutely I am doubtful that I will see a better movie this summer 
More than Green Lantern? <laughs> Green Lantern, Super 8, Captain America, Thor, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. <laughs> but yeah. that wraps up our X-Men series. Now, there's been talk about going, and this would be a one-off Fox was talking as recently as a month ago that X-Men 4 with the original cast may happen. Now, all of a sudden, because the reviews are coming in on first class and they, you know, I, I wrote them an email and said, hey, we're giving it three recommends. And they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll do a whole trilogy <laughs> of them now. <laughs> yeah, we, we we have that kind of power here now playing now. We'll, we'll just totally rewrite Hollywood. R- Rupert Murdoch's on my speed mm-hmm. dial. Well, I know Matthew Vaughn's talked about what he wants to do with a future first-class film, and he really wants to go with this whole secret history where the mutants are behind, and he's talked about, you know, in the second film, having the assassination of JFK, the bullets actually being guided by Magneto, and that's why you get all these weird conspiracies with the bullet being all over the place, because Magneto was behind it. So it, it sounds like he really wants to do something and keep these period pieces and keep doing that secret history, and after seeing this film, I'm all for that. I am too. I, I love that aspect of it, and I love the the spy part of it. I love the fact that they've blended a superhero genre with other things, things that I'm frankly more accustomed to watching. And I, I do. I think this has tremendous potential. I mean, I don't know that this is better than what Nolan's doing with Batman, which is my high water mark for superhero movies. But it, it could be. It's close. I mean, I I feel like they're in that mold, and I feel like keep it going because it is the best. X-Men movie. I mean, I enjoyed the original trilogy, but I even X2, which I think is the high watermark of that trilogy, is nowhere near what they get done on this film. I completely agree. You know, kind of going into this, I kind of had the feeling that it might be a one-off because they were talking X4 with the original cast and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a good stopgap, but bring back Patrick Stewart, bring back Ian McKellen. This allows us to keep the rights to the (laughs) characters until we make the hit that we think it's going to be. But, you know, they don't know what they have. Clearly, they underestimate I, I was reading trades this afternoon, and they thought this might open at 30, 40 million. And with good word of mouth, it could make even more as the week progresses. More importantly, unlike Charles, this film may have legs. Yes. Yes, exactly. I have a feeling, or Thor, you know, a movie that actually grows, that doesn't open with the tremendous $100 million box office, but in the end pulls in a tidy profit because, hey, it's actually entertaining. I'm actually feeling something as I'm watching all of these explosions. And that's a rare treat indeed in a summer action film is, is to have that human drama. I mean, they got something here, and I think they're going to figure it out. I, I don't think, I can understand why they'd be nervous, but there's no need to worry anymore you gotta win yeah now that i've seen this i want them to leave the x-men of the past in the past i want this to be their new franchise i really do and i want to be back here in two to three years discussing matthew vaughn's x-men first class two with you guys and i'm going to be even more bold here i'd rather have that than another kick-ass film i would agree because i think kick-ass is a perfect one-off and you know the way the comics are going there i want to see this continue i want to see mcavoy back i want to see all of these characters back i want to see some of the b-level characters get a little bit more time that they didn't get this time i really do they wondered since the 90s could we ever make x-men work without wolverine you made the best x-men film by not making a wolverine film you know what i find interesting about the x-men i was never a huge 
comic book fan of the X-Men. I've read it on and off. But what I like and what I think really came through with this latest film, and it was there with all of them, is that it doesn't have to play as your traditional superhero film. That because this is based on people with mutated genes, it's great just science fiction. And I like that, that it doesn't have to be a capes and tights type movie that it, you know, it could be a science fiction spy thriller. So I think there's so much potential because of that angle that if they grasp onto that, which they have with this film and they keep running with that, you know, it doesn't have to tie, you know, we'll see how the Avengers is in a year, but this doesn't need to be part of that. Not every superhero film needs to be the Avengers. It could be its own thing. I think that really the X-Men in many ways has helped redefine superheroes for the last decade. And I think this is going to do so again for this decade. I think that it shows you can have serious and fun. I think that, you know, Iron Man straight a bit to the fun, Batman a little too far to the serious. This had a great mix. I think this is going to appeal. You know, it's not going to make Dark Knight money, but it's going to appeal to a wider audience and I think do so well on home video. I think that this is a film that people are going to remember for a long time and a series that this is going to help elevate. I think this is going to make the previous films look better because now you're going to be able to go back and watch them because they're shown endlessly on FX and see those relationships a bit differently between the characters. I think that as our second Marvel series, it is really a high, high note. And yeah, I'm glad to see that you have some more optimism as we go into our summer with Fantastic Four and whatever else we have planned. Whatever, you know, bring it on. I I, I, I can honestly say that I don't have expectations we're going to hit these highs, but I can see the potential now. Where I didn't before as a non-comic book fan, I'm like, oh, there's people in ridiculous outfits. I like these characters. And even when they're not in great movies, I'll, I'd hold up X3 is not a great movie that I still recommend. I had fun on all of these, with the exception of that unfortunate TV pilot and that miscalculated X-Men origin story. I think every true X-Men movie works. And I think it's a very durable series. One of the best I've ever reviewed for Now Playing. Well, that does wrap up our X-Men series. We want to thank the Now Playing listeners for joining us on this journey. And if you did enjoy it, please head to iTunes and leave us a positive review. That really helps us bring in new listeners and really helps spread word of mouth because reviews matter more than downloads as far as getting us up those iTunes charts. So if you enjoyed it, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you subscribe to us through iTunes, we're going to have some great summer programming coming up starting next week with the Transformers retrospective series, starting with the 1986 cartoon. Yay! I don't know what any of this is. I am the Transformers newbie. I somehow made it all through the 80s without watching the show or collecting the toys. And you hung out with me, and I live Transformers. I know! I I sort of am aware of it. I thought they were cool in a Rubik's Cube (laughs) kind of way, but I never understood them as characters and certainly not as movie stars, so this will be new for me. I look forward to new experiences. Uh, Speaking of new experiences, how are we doing on that uh, voting thing? I I think we're done, right? We are done. What's the final total? Oh, boy. You're not going to (laughs) like it. (laughs) Oh, no! You're going to be seeing green. Oh! The listeners have let you down, Stuart. 54% to 46%. And what shocked me is Super 8 held such an early lead, but it was 50-50. Even if there was a couple votes, the percentages worked out to 50-50 until, Stuart, you lambasted Green Lantern during Wolverine. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I created my own hell, is what you're telling me, by being so out of my head angry at how stupid that thing looked, I actually sealed my fate. And, and for expressing your, your hatred of Ryan Reynolds. I don't think I said I hated the man. I think I said I'd never have, I don't know him. And you know what? Whenever I don't know a star before I knock them, I did this before I know who killed me. I went and saw Parent Trap. I'm going to go f- watch Buried. It's like the one movie on his resume that I actually think might be good. And I'll watch Buried. I'll post a review of that on our Facebook page. I like the color green. Hey, I got nothing against green. I mean, if it were Yellow Lantern, I might have some problems. So it, 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 there, There is a Yellow Lantern in it. What? Yep. You'll, you'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that <laughs> we'll when it comes out. What? <laughs> no! I don't even get the right color in a Green Lantern movie. I can't even get green. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So we will be reviewing that as our first bonus series review. Thanks to all of the donors who supported Now Playing. We want to just give back a little more by doing some bonus series this summer. And then after we finish up Transformers, we're going to be doing Fantastic Four. Why Fantastic Four? Well, Chris Evans is in it, and Chris Evans is in Captain America coming out in late July, so that kind of fits. And another bonus series is Jacob Brock and I review the Final Destination films. This is all coming up. You can find it all at nowplayingpodcast.com or on our iTunes feed. And also, we will be posting our episode announcements and our movie mini-reviews, such as Stuart seeing Buried, on our Facebook page and Twitter. You can find links to our social media pages at nowplayingpodcast.com. Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me on this series. I've had a hell of a lot of fun. Indeed. It's been groovy, baby. Be mutant, be proud. Yeah. And we'll be back next week with Transformers. Talk to you then. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another X-Men film, leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's X-Men First Class. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. And individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chicken millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? 
You can find the link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? I'm telling you, I have needs! You think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to have the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Carlos, and Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Class dismissed. Did we just lose the feed? Are we still live? I don't know what pulling a Kelly is. (laughs) I don't even know who Kelly is. Is that uh, Tori Spelling? No, Jenny Garth. Oh. Oh. I'm sorry, dude. You're on your own. (laughs) Um, Members of my generation know who Kelly Garth is. Remember, I I know who the character is. I don't know what pulling a Kelly is. The I Choose Me was a huge moment for Nino. All right. anyway. Anyway. CIA agent Moira Kelly discovers Shaw and his entourage are mutants and recruits Charles Xavier and Mystique to aid the CIA in bringing down Shaw. But when the C- um, I'm going to interrupt you. It's not Moira Kelly. It's McTaggart. That's an actress. Oh. It's McTaggart. <laughs> <laughs> she played Donna in the Twin Peaks movie. I've been that watching a sense. lot of yeah. <laughs> Twin Peaks lately. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on Facebook. <laughs> I'm like, I, I could I could almost leave it if he had just said Moira, you could cut out the other, but I'm like, nah, I, I'm going to stop it. Okay, thank you. The first time, now playing goes to zero degrees of Kevin Bacon. We've been one. You're, other than Friday the 13th. Oh, shit. Yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. Well, yeah, never that was mind. our first podcast, Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been a long time. <laughs> it has. It's been a couple of years. I'll give you that. Don't really know January Jones. I don't watch Mad Men. I, I just got to say, is that a real name? Because that sounds like a poor name. <laughs> it does sound like a poor And here she is playing a stripper. It just makes me wonder. And this is now the second series only that ends on three recommends, the last one being Predators. Wow. Oh, and I don't have the strong <laughs> feelings about Predators that I do about that. That was like barely a recommended, I think. I think I was put up. <laughs> you were not put up to know. that, but I still think you need to somehow retroactively go back and recommend Star Trek. That was, that was some bullshit. <laughs> Episode announcements and our movie mini reviews, such as Stuart seeing buried on our MySpace. <laughs> the fuck? I guess I'm a period piece on our MySpace page. <laughs> oh, it's 2006. 